VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, September the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's producing this Come On With It edition of the show. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86. 26, so I suppose some more blurry-eyed Blue Jays fans out there. I know Dave stayed up to watch the NFL contest last night. Watched the Jays, lost 5-3, pretty flattering scoreline. Only managed five, uh, four hits over the course of the evening. You know, up against the Yankees' ace and Cy Young candidate Garrett Cole, but man, you're up, you're down if you're a Blue Jays fan and or player. All right, checking in Cornwall, Ontario at the Shorty Jenkins Classic. Team Guju yesterday went 1-1, one one, dropped the evening contest. They're back at it with a pair of games today. And I've been asked why why don't I offer some sort of opinion even though many of you probably don't care what my opinion is on senior hockey but senior's been a real dog's breakfast it's been hard to manage whether it be on the east coast west coast central it's always been a very difficult league to get organized and you know be successful in long-term long-term viability so with the Deer Lake Red Wings deciding not to play in the west coast league leaving only two teams on that circuit which means they're probably not going to be able to play I don't know why Deer Lake is uh, moving on to the Central West League. I don't know what the issues are regarding welcoming Stephenville into the fold, but I see a lot of angry folks or disappointed hockey fans on the West Coast chiming in on social media, what have you, and in my email, but there you go. And uh, good luck to all hands involved in the St. John's Junior Hockey League, which has been uber successful over the decades. They kick off their uh, opening game tonight, 8.30 at the DF Barnes Arena, and a sight for sore eyes. The Avalon Junior Celtics are back in the mix, so that's terrific. They take on the St. John's Junior Caps once again, 8.30 at the DF Barnes Arena. All right, so we're still trying to find out some information about the settlement between St. John Sports and Entertainment and Deacon Sports, of course, the organization that owns and operates the Newfoundland Growlers. Can't get any details. Remember, it was a very public spat back and forth about the treatment of either side by either side. We don't know. But an announcement yesterday coming from St. John Sports and Entertainment, they've appointed a new CEO. Jill Brewer, the current CEO, is going to be leaving the job as of October 18th, and in comes the new man, Brent Mead. Brent has an impressive CV over decades with the provincial government and or in the private sector. I've worked with Brent. He is studious and detailed and committed, so I think that sounds like a terrific appointment for an organization that could use someone to steady the ship, so to speak. So congratulations to Brent, and hopefully St. John Sports and Entertainment will thrive under his leadership. Okay, let's keep going. This is kind of a strange story, and it's a new campaign from DFO called Don't Let It Loose. So what we're seeing, apparently, I haven't seen it, but lots of reports of it, is people are seeing turtles, like red-eared turtles and or goldfish, crayfish. Uh, What else was reported out? The koi that was found in Mount Pearl's Branscombe Pond. So DFO is asking you to please don't release those types of pets, you know, aquarium pets, into the natural waterways. They become an invasive species. They have very little in the way of predators, so they can take over food... uh, some of the food chain and or take up space and all the problems that come with whatever is labeled an invasive species so it can be expensive to have any of these types of pets at home so as opposed to dumping in the pond in Bowery Park or out in Branscombe Pond or in Rennie's River you know maybe get in touch with the pet store where you bought it to find a place or an option or get some tips as what you can do I remember it's not that long ago we had Dennis Oliver on the show he's the president of the nonprofit Turtles Rest and Retirement Villa he's got 63 turtles in his care 
there. Maybe Mr. Oliver will be able to give you some tips as well as to what to do with that animal if you are unable to care for it adequately in the future. And someone shared this story with me, and it's really quite scary. It's awful, and there's a dollop of evil. So this is for the trail network in and around Airport Heights here in the city of St. John's. I'll just read it out as written by the poster. Hello for everyone. I want to share a terrible find on the trail in our area. On Monday, I was walking my dogs on the trail, and in one moment, one of my dogs started actively sniffing something and immediately eating what she found. I immediately started pulling out what was in the what was in her mouth and when I saw what was there I was shocked I started to shake it was a piece of sausage and there was something green in the middle of the sausage and I immediately understood that it was poison and you can see the picture obviously someone purposefully put whatever this substance is in the sausage I started looking for the other places and on the bridge I found another seven to ten more of these pieces of sausage right there on the trail you know if you know anything about who's doing that I mean, imagine willfully and purposely wanting to poison an animal, you know, for instance, walking your dog in that particular tail, trail network. So I guess you're going to have to be vigilant if you're walking your animal in and around there and possibly other areas. Okay. So we're back to school. And, you know, we can have the general conversation about how it's going so far, the supports that may or may not be in place. We had a great call kick off the show yesterday from John talking about the curriculum and the delivery and maybe some massaging or nuances that have to be added to the curriculum. But given what we've seen in the last number of days, and I would suggest weeks and months, about the concern people are voicing about curriculum, specifically health. Given what we've seen and protests that have been staged and counter-protests that have been in place, I would imagine that curriculum night has been better attended this year than any year prior. At least I hope so. Because I think there's a lot of confusion about what the curriculum entails. So... There was a pretty woeful uh, showing at the school in my neighborhood, as I asked some of my friends who have school-aged children in that school. So there's no better place to have a look at the curriculum than online where it's posted and or to go to the curriculum night, meet the teacher of your, of your child, their homeroom teacher, have a look at the curriculum, ask questions about the curriculum, because that's a surefire way where we get some accurate information in the hands of all, all folks, all parents, all children, all social circles. Because what we see now is a lot of really emotional, hyped up and ginned up rhetoric and and hyperbole that's kind of guiding the conversation. So I hope that people take the opportunity to go to curriculum night. In years past, it kind of felt a bit boring. And I remember when my boys were smaller and in school, I'm thinking curriculum night. Well, I kind of know what to expect. My wife's a teacher. But I went anyway because it was helpful, you know, to know what's coming down the pike, to know that your child is going to face this topic or that subject, and maybe some of the challenges that might bring to your son or daughter. So let's hope that people took the opportunity to go to curriculum night to try to get some of these conversations back on the rails. And if you want to take it on. We can do it. I also wonder what curriculum might involve, maybe in the older grades, about using artificial intelligence, chat GPT and the like. Because you know full well there's been a huge uptake for people uh, dabbling with it and experimenting with artificial intelligence and maybe going to take some of the shortcuts available by simply putting in some key words and having this software spit out a song, an essay, a book report, whatever the case may be. So I wonder how that conversation has gone in junior high and high school in particular. Also, when we know there's going to be a ban on smoking and vaping, we've seen some updates coming from the chief medical examiner regarding drugs. So these are all those types of conversations in addition to reading, writing, and arithmetic because that's not that's all involved in educating people in the K-12 system. So I'm completely open and up for any of those type of back-to-school conversations if you're so inclined. 
We have been talking about harm reduction and the huge surge in the number of overdose deaths. So some of the information coming from the chief medical officer, or the chief medical examiner, I heard Linda Swain read it on the newscast. Here you go. Latest stats for 2023 as released by that office show a total of 17 sudden deaths where cocaine was the cause of death up to September 21st. No fentanyl was detected in 13 of those 17 cocaine-related deaths. Fentanyl was detected in six drug toxicity deaths up to that date. Of those six, cocaine and fentanyl were detected in four and no cocaine detected in two. I guess the moral of the story here is the supply of cocaine on the street is deadly. Deadlier than ever. And we know what that's meant for people in the death spiral of addiction and what the relationship is with healthcare, the relationship with the criminal justice system. So, you know, whether it be harm reduction and understanding the availability of a naloxone kit or what have you, and that's not enabling, that's simply saving lives if possible. So those are pretty staggering and scary numbers. You want to take it on. Let's go. All right. You've heard me many times bemoan the fact that some public policy sounds good, feels good, but it's hard to really measure how successful it is. So whether it be now, we know that their staff belong to the government, gone to Southwest Asia or Southeast Asia to try to recruit early early childhood educators. What's the number we're looking for? Nurses in India, doctors in Ireland, demand on daycare. Really hard to assess whether or not we're on the right track. But kudos when they get it right, fair ball. So people have lots of concerns about the numbers of people who are on social assistance, whether they could or should be working. For some, they refer to it as the financial cliff. They're unwilling to jump over. But what the implementation early this year of the employment stability pilot, it looks like it's working. So it was only here in the St. John's area at this moment, or up until now, in partnership with Stella Circle and Choices for Youth. So what happened? There was 170 people participating in the pilot. That began in January. Uh, As of now, about 40 of them are no longer on social assistance. Good news, right? Something we can measure. Looks like it's working. So let's do what? Expand it to the rest of the province, which they're doing. So there was upfront money that was $125, now going to go to $250 to allow people trying to start a new job or get back into the workforce to buy whatever gear, like work boots or clothing appropriate to their new job. There's also some money that if you stick with it, you're going to get financial incentives from the government. So under the expanded pilot, participants who begin a new job or continue working will get a government payment of $250 after six months. $500 $500 after a year, $1,000 after two years. Okay. For some, it might sound like we're just giving money away. But if the reality is that 40 out of 170 since the beginning of this calendar year are no longer on social assistance, so they're paving their own way, they're gaining experience, they're probably moving up the payroll charts with whatever job they've taken on here. So this is a lot of good, good win-win here. So again, while other policies haven't been able to display a real measurement of success, this one looks like it's absolutely working. I'm not entirely sure the number of people in the province that are on social assistance, but one of the confusing parts of the story that I'm going to try to get to the bottom of is they say there's adjustments to the exemption formula. If you're on social assistance and you take on some work, part-time we'll say, how much money you're able to keep. They say this program will allow you to keep more. But whatever adjustments made to the exemption formula, I don't really know. But that would be an important tidbit of information to incorporate into this story. But when something works, good enough. Who cares what party, what department came up with an idea that eventually is better for all of us? But it looks like this one is working, and it sounds good to me. All right. 
So again, I'm hearing lots and seeing lots and reading lots of, I guess, mocking or criticizing or questioning the Premier going to Alberta to try to convince people to move to Newfoundland and Labrador, many of which might be expats and they really think that they'd like to make their home this province one more time or again. So then there's reference to job opportunities, and there could and should be. You know, we're going to see massive expansion in mining. You know, like, for instance, the Rambler Mine, the Ming Mine, is now going to reopen at some point. Some 400 people on the Bay of our Peninsula work there. And then notably are these wind, hydrogen, ammonia jobs. There's a protest scheduled today or a rally. It's going to happen at the Cabot Building on Barters Hill in St. John starting at noon. This is going to be operated by the Social Justice Co-op and the Council of Canadians, and their point has been long clear. Their number one worry is the environmental impact because it will be meaningful. It absolutely will be real. These turbine structures are massive. Is it a good thing for the province or a bad thing? I'll leave that up to you. We will see monies coming in the door through expanded tax base when people are working on the projects. There is a water royalty, which people question that we don't even get to harvest that royalty until the entirety of the capital expense from the proponent is recovered. Then there's crown land lease and all the rest of it. And in addition to environmental impact, they make it a, an important point. At this point, we don't really know how much of the energy generated by the wind turbines will ever make it back onto our grid, which will have an impact on our rates. But primarily, all of the product, the wind energy, and or the hydrogen and ammonia are for, are for markets elsewhere. So if you are a representative of one of those organizations or someone on the southwest coast in the Port of Port Peninsula or anywhere on the Bjorn Peninsula or out of come by chance or the exploits group, you want to talk about wind, hydrogen, ammonia, either for, against, questions, concerns, let's do it. They're also talking about whether or not there should be a federal environmental assessment. We were told by, it was, at that time it was uh, Andrew Parsons, the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology, that there were triggers that could cause a federal environmental assessment to come to pass. What they are, we'll try to get a better understanding. I've read enough to have some sort of base knowledge of it, but not enough to be you know, giving you dead uh, specifics this morning, exactly what a trigger would mean. But there are some of the concerns they have, and you want to talk about it, you know what to do. All right, this weekend marks one year since post-tropical uh, storm Fiona battered the southwest coast once again. You hear the personal stories of, yes, even if you've had financial compensation come in the door, it's just that sense of the loss of normalcy and the worries with every weather forecast that you'll see, whether it be through hurricane season during the month of September and into October. And those stories are important. You know, we do have some uh, some big questions about insurance, what insurance covers, the ability to get insurance. And, you know, even just something as fundamental as paying some pretty extraordinary uh, premiums over the course of years or decades. And then lo and behold, the seawater swipes your house right off the plot it stood on and into the sea and or damages to the point where it would be uninhabitable, which is the case for about 150 homes in that part of the province. Big questions there. All right, I had a stroll downtown St. John's there the other day, and no doubt the business owners, and for all of us, the eyesore associated with spray paint and graffiti is out of control. So there's a story of one business owner had to spend about $40,000. If you're a small uh, business operating in the city of St. John's, $40,000 to clean up spray paint is a big financial uh, smack in the face. So now the RNC have established a graffiti tip line. All right. If you see who's at it and they're looking for the people who are responsible for some of the several tag names that you see, and a tag is the graffiti artist, 
nuisance that would put their name in the form of an acronym, whether it be CROE or ACE, Republic. There's a few of them out there. So they were going to ask you to call the hotline, 709-729-8800. Not only is it a financial burden for the business owners, but we all know what it means for the eyesore that it presents. So pretty pretty you know it might be innocuous if you're not living in and around town or own a business down there but it's not great all right a couple of quickies before we go for those of you who are interested in not only running away to the circus but taking in some circus acts circus fest has now kicked off it took place last night at the sheraton hotel at 8 30. Uh, circus performers from around the country germany the united states and ukraine will be showing off their talents some of the main stage shows running at the lspu hall and the arts and culture center so congratulations to artistic executive director benny malone and his team for bringing circus fest back to the city i've taken uh, taken it in a couple times in the past it's always a great laugh and i want to say congratulations and break every leg in the house tonight to the folks at terra bruce productions and their chief operating officer bob hallett the majestic theater a 100 year old building that has come and gone in many forms and fashions. It's been a lighting showroom, uh, a business that sold washers and dryers. There's a furniture store, then a bunch of different bars inhabited this 100-year-old theater. Now, through all of the bumps in the road and the time and the blood, sweat and tears and money, they brought it back to a past glory. I can't wait to get a look at what they've done inside. Even just the sign outside is really retro, chic, Broadway cool. So bravo. Tonight they open up their original Original performance of the Wild Rovers. So, congratulations to all hands. Uh, the, uh, the media get a sneak peek at it this morning, and then they kick it off for their guests this evening. So, there's going to be an opportunity, not like fine dining, as Bob says. It's not a pretentious night out. Soup, sandwich, salad, grab a coffee, enjoy the ambience, uh, check out the shows. So, they've got a little cafe and bar also inside called Theater Hill. Congratulations, bravo! All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to wrap up the week. You know what that means. We need your participation on the show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, I know that I've spoke to you before, and I know that my father has on several occasions. I'm calling on behalf of my mother right now. She is currently in Buren with my father. Um, he was diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer on June 27th. So my call is not about the doctors and the nurses with Eastern Health specifically. They have provided excellent care. On Tuesday, we got a call. He was admitted into ICU on, on Saturday. He was having really low blood pressure. There was an infection somewhere that they couldn't find. So he was put in ICU. On Tuesday, we had a meeting with management and the nurses saying that he was being moved to Buren from Carbonier Hospital because they didn't have a doctor after six o'clock Tuesday evening. The internal medicine doctor was, he was on, uh, he was on a locum there. So because there was no other ICU bed with an internal medicine doctor close by, he had to be moved to, to Buren. So they called, they had an ambulance come from St. Mary's to pick him and his nurse up, bring them to Buren Hospital. And dad is not a small man. He's, he's 6'2". He's, 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 he's very tall. And it was just one of the small ambulance vans. So that trip 
broke him. He was not well while he was in Carbonier Hospital, but he was alert. He was able to have a conversation. So now mom, she followed behind them. She had to pay out of her own pocket expenses to stay in Buren with him. I'm a single mom of an 11-year-old little girl. I'm trying to keep her life as normal as possible and let her go to school, see her friends. So ever since he arrived in Buren, his, his health has declined. He made the decision yesterday that he wants to come home to die. Everything, that, that trip to Buren broke him. And the state of the healthcare, that there's no doctor and that they would move a terminally ill patient three and a half, four hours away, I don't think is reasonable. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been a really hard thing to deal with. I'm really uh, my, mom, my mom did speak with, with uh, MHA Pam Parsons. And waiting for a callback, she was supposed to speak with Mr. Minister Osborne about the health care system. But I guess that now, um, Mr. Osborne and, and Premier Fury are now in Alberta trying to bring people to Newfoundland to work. Why would anybody want to come to Newfoundland to work when in an emergent situation there's no doctors to take care of you? First off, I'm, I know the story, and I'm deeply sorry for what you and your family are going through. So uh, these are tough, tough questions to ask because I'm not sure where to go here, but with a terminal prognosis, is palliative care the next step, which could be at the Miller Center, or what's, what's coming? Um, he, he decided that he's ready to go. It was his decision. He didn't want to go into palliative care. He wanted to come home. And with with the with the diagnosis, there is there was no there was no option for for surgeries, or it was too far gone. He did try the chemo, but his platelets continued to go low, and uh, they had to he would have one treatment, and then he would have to wait two weeks. But as for the palliative care at the Miller Center, he uh, he wasn't interested. He he wanted to he wanted to be home for that. I can understand that. That's how. Uh, that's what happened with our family and our father. Um, so, with no beds, look, it's heartbreaking to have to endure any of this—from diagnosis to being shifted so far away from your home, and then your mother having to pay to stay close by her husband, and what it means to you and try to stabilize your daughter's life. So, all of this is extremely overwhelming, and it's heartbreaking. So. What do you think were options available to keep him from being moved to a hospital farther afield? Is there something else you think could have or should have been done? They need to do something to be able to retain the doctors here. I mean, the doctors aren't staying here for, for nothing. The doctors are leaving because, because of, I think, the patient overload because there's not enough doctors. Uh, when is your father like coming especially, home? Especially the internal medicine doctors. Uh, the ambulance is bringing him today at one o'clock. They're, they're leaving Buren today at one o'clock. But today they have a bariatric uh, stretcher to put him on in the, uh, in the ambulance to come home so it's longer and hopefully a little bit more comfortable for him. What sort of preparations do you have to do at home to 
accommodate your dad and to ensure that he's as comfortable as possible and all the rest. So it was simply being the the presence of family close by and in his familiar surroundings going to be helpful, which it obviously will be. So how are you going to approach that, you know, in, in a way to help you yourself, help your daughter, help your mother and your father? So today, um, right now, I'm actually at my parents' house. I took I took the day off so I could be here at my parents' house. There is a hospital bed being delivered. Um, they they have home care arranged, but only for 12 hours a day. Um, and then myself and my mom and I live only five minutes down the road from from my parents. And I believe that there's not, we, I mean, that, that's the extent of our family here immediately. And then um, there's aunts and uncles between Northern Bay and, and, uh, and town. But uh, it's, I think that having the, the, the comforts of, I'm not, I'm not going to say the comforts because he's, the, the familiarity of, of home and not being in a hospital and especially being so far away, not being able to see his, his only grandchild and his only daughter kind of thing. You know, some of the things that we don't know, like we're told that there's more doctors than ever here in the province, but we don't know if they're all practicing with a full complement of patients or they're doing pure research or, you know, where all of the shortages are beyond family doctors, which grab a lot of the headlines. But, you know, the efforts that have been f- put forward, and I, I subscribe to a, a bunch of different newspapers around the country, and I read very similar stories elsewhere. And so not what we've got ourselves into here is we've got provinces and territories that are, in essence, going to be in bidding wars against each other for healthcare professionals, doctors included. Mm-hmm. So something has to give. Because that's all that's going to mean is we're going to spend more on human resources, which takes away monies that could be spent in the nuts and bolts of healthcare. Yeah. So this bidding war is going to be less than helpful. I don't know how to, to how to solve it, but there's a bunch of things we talk about here that could make it much better for the healthcare system and more doctors in the fold. And again, I'm really sorry this is happening to you and your family, Lisa. Would you like to say anything else this morning, whether it be directed at the the minister, the premier, or at the general public? Um. So. One thing on Tuesday, when we were told it was a manager of of patient services that had told us, and he was told that it came down from from the directors, from the higher ups with Eastern Health. My response to that, when he said that, I I believe that that maybe they should have come in and told a dying man that he was being moved three and a half, four hours away from from his home because there was no doctors. Um, for anybody that's able to put this story together, because I have not mentioned my father's name, but for anybody that can put the story together, um, don't message him yet. He's home. He's coming home today. And um, I know that a lot of people are probably shocked to hear how bad things have gotten because it has been kept quite private. Um, and he's also he's under the palliative care program, the palliative care end of life program with community health. I wish you all well, as well as you can be while you deal with these uh, very trying circumstances, Lisa. Take good care of yourself. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I know some palliative care could be offered at home, and that was you know, yet another task placed on the hands of paramedics who are now included in palliative care if you choose to stay home. And many people will. 
make that exact choice. You know, we have seen the creation of, for instance, the Lionel Kelland Hospice, which is a really welcomed addition to the later stages of life. And yes, palliative care is also available at places like the Miller Center. Let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, well, of course, we've been talking about well-being and well-being week, individual responsibility, the healthcare system itself, whether it be businesses and different organizations, and yes, municipalities. There's already a pretty full plate uh, in front of municipal councillors, mayors, and deputy mayors across the province, but they do play a role. So we'll talk about that when we speak with the CEO of uh, the Community Sector Council. That's Colin Corcoran right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the CEO of the Community Sector Council. That's Colin Corcoran. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. And how are you today? Couldn't be better. How about you? I am absolutely fantastic. Sun's peeking out through some clouds, so getting some of that uh, vitamins this morning. And it's Friday. And it's a Friday as well. Terrific. Okay, so we've been doing some well-being week hits uh, throughout the entirety of this week. And, you know, we talk about well-being as individual responsibility and the the tone and tenor of public policy. But when we look at municipalities, I mean, they will very likely, and justifiably so, is picking up the garbage. It's water and sewer. It's snow clearing. It's uh, street lighting. It's those normal courses of business for municipalities. But what role can and should they be playing? How, how do you think they should be thinking about well-being and municipal leadership on that front. Absolutely, Patty. And municipalities play a tremendous role in uh, in well-being in our province because when you look at the orders of government, they are the closest to the people in this province. They are the closest to the issues uh, in the communities, and uh, they have that ear. And what I'd like to talk about this morning is uh, communities in the broad sense in terms of the community sector as sure. well, yeah. and the the charities, the nonprofits, and the volunteers that are actively doing uh, doing a lot of the work and working hand-in-hand with their municipal leaders. Let's go. Where would you like to start? Absolutely. So uh, this week is Wellness Week, and uh, at the Community Sector Council, we're, we're thinking a lot about what does this mean for uh, groups and organizations on the ground? What does it mean for municipalities? What does it mean for your local charity, your local service organization, the food bank? And so when we think about wellness, we think about the fact that the community sectors, uh, the community sector and the organizations and all the volunteers uh, have been doing this work for a very long time. Uh, when we think about wellness, uh, we know that it's not necessarily uh, uh, primary health. Uh, We know it's not just the healthcare system. We know it's all the social determinants that actually impact who we are and what we do as individuals and societies. And one of the one of the groups and one of the organizations that typically shape or provide us with the services or what we need to be better versions of ourselves to be well are some of those community groups and organizations that are on the ground doing the work. You know, when you have a starting point or jumping off point, whether it be, you know, fundraising or some of those initiatives, when you have something like let's use and uh, maybe start with what well-being, me- well-being means as we try to provide the services inside our mandate, things like that become contagious. Before long, it becomes subconscious. You don't have to say, okay, well, here's how we start this project. Because if you have it as a mindset, once again, it becomes uh, rote, becomes infectious, it becomes just subconsciously exactly how you think about any program or policy or initiative you under take. 
You're absolutely right. And uh, for us, uh, I like to think as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, uh, the, the idea and the concept of taking care of others is innate to our nature. We are community-minded people. We have strong relationships uh, on communities, and we see that we see the evidence of that uh, daily, particularly when it comes to volunteers uh, in our communities. And so for, for us here in Newfoundland and Labrador, wellness is not a foreign term. It's not a new term for us, but uh, it, just, uh, it just really refines and uh, sheds light on all the good work of the people uh, who are helping us uh, be well and be the better version of ourselves. Sometimes when we talk about things like well-being, it feels very catch-all. It's a little bit innocuous. It's a little bit vague. Do you have any specifics about how municipalities or the charitable organizations, how they incorporate that philosophy? Because sometimes we talk at 100,000 feet above sea level, but maybe something more tangible. You know, mimic a best practice that you see one group or one municipality taking on. Absolutely. Uh, we hosted a um, we hosted a webinar with uh, Dr. Fitzgerald and uh, Dr. Uh, Parfait there earlier in the week. And uh, one of the questions that came forward and some of the stories that came forward was how individual groups and organizations were practicing uh, wellness uh, and uh, providing services related to wellness in their communities. And one in particular was a group who's providing seniors uh, with a meal uh, on a uh, biweekly or a bimonthly basis. And it's that act act of uh, providing a meal to somebody. And we know seniors in our province, uh, most of them live on fixed income, the cost of food is going up. And so one of the one of the elements of being well is having you know, food security. And so that service is tr- a tremendous uh, thing. It may be a small act in some people's mind, but it has a tremendous impact. And not just the, uh, the, the availability of good food, good warm food, but there's that connection point to that socialization that occurs. And we see the, you know, the dinners and the suppers and the, the senior celebrations and the afternoon teas uh, happening uh, for many service-oriented organizations right across our province. So that's one definitive example that we can see that we've been doing for a long time. Yeah, because it's not just the meal. It's the interaction of serving the meal that makes it even bigger than simply a bite to eat, right? So those those types of things, because we leave, we lead busy lives with busy schedules and sometimes we're tired and overwhelmed or frustrated, but the positive, even very small, short-term uh, interactions, they go such a long way. I know that for sure, whether it be interacting with people on the telephone and or the grocery store or what have you. You know how you feel when it was one of those, how you doing? No, not great, boy, weather's terrible, blah, blah, blah. You know, then all of a sudden that seeps into your psyche. That's how you feel all of a sudden. So all these little things add up to be very big things. Uh, Colin, anything else you want to share this morning on behalf of CSC and or Wellbeing Week? I, I think if I was to if I was to impart uh, uh, a, a thought here, it would be around volunteerism and the benefits of volunteering. Uh, so the example that I provided before about uh, providing a meal to seniors that provides a clear benefit to the seniors, but also provides a clear benefit to the volunteers who are putting together those meals, who are delivering those meals, who are hosting uh, seniors in their in their various uh, halls and locations. And so, as you know, as being involved involved in volunteering and even ahead of one of our volunteer weeks before, uh, volunteering has so many intangible benefits that people often don't 
think about until they're faced with it. So volunteering helps us uh, actually with socialization. It's getting out of the house and uh, joining others in a like-minded cause with a passion area and uh, being able to socialize with, with other people, which we know has positive impacts on long-term health. It helps you connect to a community. It helps with that sense of belonging. Uh, and it also helps you to incorporate new perspectives and new ways of thinking as you encounter more people uh, as you volunteer. It gives you a sense of purpose. So exactly what you just said, Patty, around tapping into that, uh, into that center of the brain where it makes you feel really good. And if you're feeling good, you're going to start acting in a, in a really, in a more of a well way. And one of the pieces that we almost forget about the social determinants of health and volunteering is actually the career benefits and potential attachment to the uh, labor force. We know that income is a part of the social determinants of health and volunteering helps you develop those practical skills, soft skills, tangible hard skills, and in some areas of volunteering, very professional skills such as uh, first aid training, such as uh, uh, teamwork, uh, particularly for volunteers who are professionally trained in their work. And so I, I would be remiss not to mention the power of volunteering as a way towards and a pathway to better wellness. Good to have you on the show, Colin. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me, Patty, and you have a great weekend. You too, sir. All the best. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Colin Corcoran, the CEO of the Community Sector Council. Okay, let's roll. Let's go to line number one. Charlie, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. That was a great conversation you had with uh, Colin. I couldn't agree with more what, what he was saying. Yeah, Colin's really solid, no question. Yeah. i got to ask you a personal question now. Do you do you talk to yourself? Nonstop. <laughs> well, well, that means you're healthy. I used to think I was crazy because I talked to myself too. So I was reading this 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 great article or interview, and, and they were talking about the benefits of talking to yourself. So maybe we're not as crazy as people think, right? Well, my, my inner voice is going a million miles an hour all day long, and some of that's because of what I do for a living. But I do find myself talking to myself every now and then. And you know, one one uh, time of the day when I do is when I'm cooking. It's just the yeah, weirdest yeah. thing. And all of a sudden, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? <laughs> Who are you talking yeah. to? <laughs> anyway. like, like, like sports figures, uh, uh, baseball pitchers, that they, they do do it all the time, right? Apparently so. <laughs> anyway, um, you had a guy on yesterday uh, looking at Wellbeing Week called John. I, I, I don't know his last name. And he was talking about uh, the benefits of health education. Now, we have to change attitudes and so on, which is one of the hardest things you can do is uh, change people's way of thinking about, uh, especially about food and health and so on. But uh, he talked about the lack of emphasis in the curriculum, which I've been talking about, if you remember, for the last uh, 20 years. And I thought he was right on. Uh, we've got these sacred cows in the curriculum. I look at these committees that... Uh, are supposed to look at change and are supposed to be the curriculum experts. To get new people coming in, um, being added on each year, I guess, or every few years. When you come into a, a committee, you generally are expected to toe the line. If you're, if you're coming in with great ideas and that, you're not very often well received. And, and a lot of these committees, they're really, really stuck in, in the um, everyday, the status quo. And uh, uh, I shouldn't name sacred cows, but uh, I have before, and 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 you know what the, what, what they are. They, they, we we can't escape them, and and uh, I would like to see health education at the very top of that list. I mean, if we're going to change things in Newfoundland, people's habits and so on, 
if we don't start with the young and get changes there, how the heck are we going to get people to uh, to change their habits, right? Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I don't know exactly what the curriculum looks like throughout every grade. People can find out. And like I said off the show, and it was a bit... I don't know if it was a cynicism creeping into my thoughts, but, you know, with all the focus and the questions and concerns and criticisms aimed at teachers and or the curriculum, like, for instance, at my wife's school last night was curriculum night. No better way to meet the teacher, see what he or she thinks and feels, what the curriculum is going to look like, how they're going to deliver it, what to expect. But lo and behold, I'm imagining that it was woeful turnout like it always is, but protest, let's go. Right? I mean, anyway. Well, this is, this is a case where, where it's going to have to come from, from, from top down. I, I guess so, yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example. Back in the 90s, uh, we, had a, we had a principal's meeting in Port of Basque, and uh, we had a nutritionist from the hospital come in, a uh, lady from Ontario was working at the hospital. And she was talking about, of course, uh, the things you and I just spoke about, uh, the benefits of nutrition and so on, and our schools need to do more. And I remember asking her a few questions and uh, had a little bit of engagement. Looked around the room, and, 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 and I'd say half of them were smirking. And that's pretty well the attitude of educators sometimes to changes in, in, in curriculum, uh, in my experience. But uh, I'll leave it at that. I want to go to something else, if I may. You uh, spoke to the um, uh, Exploit CEO there uh, a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. He sounded very confident talking about uh, the the uh, low cost uh, uh hydrogen uh, comparing it to other places i guess that would would uh, produce that and you know what it reminded me of and i guess they have to come out and and, and be positive and so on uh, they can come out uh, asking questions about uh, their own operation but it reminded me of, of very much of muskrat uh, and, and, and I know you probably don't want to go back to something like that, but they were looking at uh, the need for, for, for this energy and uh, how it costs six point something billion. Uh, we can handle that and markets we could sell it to. It was all pie in the sky and it turned uh, reliability, of course, was another one. Uh, uh, Hollywood would be closed and so on. And uh, just about none of it worked out. And I look at this project and I wonder, when they say the lowest cost, who's to say that uh, people in the North Sea, uh, companies and that, uh, they, they, they've got lots of wind over there, and, and they're much closer to the European market than we are. Who's to say there's uh, no energy, uh, uh, new energy sources, because they're coming online all the time. Well, it would be cheaper than this. And I can go on and on. And uh, I, 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 I just see the, uh, the, the overconfidence and, and and the projections as uh, sometimes uh, just, uh, I shouldn't say uh, mumbo-jumbo, but uh, sometimes you question where, where these people are coming from, right? Well, it's one thing to be a head of a crown corporation, vastly different than what you need in a leader of a private sector company, is to be bullish, optimistic, but realistic. I put those exact uh, things to him. Like exactly what you just said, I said to him and asked questions of him. Gave examples of how in Denmark they've closed every hydrogen station. In Montpellier in France, they canceled the order for 51 hydrogen fueled buses yes. for a cheaper option. So I gave, you know, real world examples and I asked him if that poll poured any cold water on their plants. And so you heard what you heard, but we asked him and we're going to continue to ask because, you know, for the obvious reasons. Uh, Charlie, appreciate the time. Anything else very quickly before I have to go? Uh, uh, quickly, uh, I heard a guy talking about the exploration uh, trip to the Titanic. 
the, those trips to to space, uh, those those what, what, what do you call them? Adventure tourism. I wish they'd stop calling them exploration. They're designed to make money, and uh, the, the, the exploration we, we we think of of of, of explorers of finding new lands and so on. These people try to paint a picture of of of, of these things that are, that are, that's really unrealistic. Uh, it's adventure tourism, pure and simple. And uh, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about plastic, plastic pollution, and an interesting thought that is, you know, the uh, fossil fuel industry's reliance on plastics. They don't want to draw that direct correlation, but it's absolutely part of the conversation. Joining us right after the break is biologist and author Holly Hogan. Talk away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Holly Hogan is a marine biologist with a focus on seabirds and also an author of the book called Message in a Bottle, Ocean Dispatches from a Seabird Biologist, and Holly's on line two. Good morning, Holly Hogan. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Nice to be here. Um, yeah, I just, I, I was hoping to add to the conversation about um, climate change with regards to uh, with, with regards to plastic uh, pollution and plastic production, actually, because, um, I mean, we're all aware of the fact that we're in a climate crisis right now. And, um, you know, the uh, the head of uh, the U.N., well, the secretary general of the United Nations has even said that um, we have to stop producing oil and gas and has is quoted as saying it's either a climate solidarity pact or a collective suicide pact and um well our own government seems to be signing the suicide pact but um as we as we move towards greener energy um the the point that is being missed is that plastic is made of petroleum products and and um, the the oil and gas industry is pivoting toward plastic production uh, because people are not making that connection between oil and gas and plastic. And so um, they're just looking to diversify and to uh, lean into plastic production. And I think people need to know that. I don't think people make that relation when because we talk about plastic, we see it in the oceans, it becomes part of the food chain. We go to the grocery store and cucumbers are wrapped in plastic. You buy an action figure for your child, it takes you half hour to cut through all the plastic encasing it. Yeah. So people look at it as a, a waste product, a recyclable, but in fact, the creation of it is a big contribution to the revenue and profits in the uh, petroleum companies. Give us an idea what plastic means insofar as annual emissions. Well, as far as annual emissions go, um, pla- the plastic industry pumps a billion tons of, of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere every year. And just to make it a little more relatable, if plastic were a country, it would be the fifth largest emitter of gre- greenhouse gases in the world after the U.S., Russia, India, and China. So that's that's really, really significant. And... Um, and, you know, so the great news is, is that as we become more aware of plastic waste and start uh, becoming more savvy about how we use plastic and reuse plastic and developing a, a circular economy around plastic use, uh, we'll be fighting both the climate crisis and the plastic crisis at the same time. How would that look? Well, um, I mean, it's 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 a paradigm shift. So um, right now, I mean, there are right now, 
170 trillion pieces of plastic in the ocean. And every year we produce enough plastic to fill 25 million um, shipping containers, which would encircle the globe more than three times. And that's each year. And two-thirds of that plastic is just disposable and the, the the petrochemical industry loves that because there's no value on it. it they produce virgin plastic all the time make it cheap uh it promotes uh petroleum use and uh, keeps them in business but a circular economy wouldn't look at plastic as a waste product it would it would be a commodity like all other valuable commodities and right now we are losing billions of dollars and this is from the federal government uh, website um, we are losing billions of dollars in revenue uh, by this single-use mindset rather than a linear economy uh, looking at it more as a circular where plastic 80% of the waste is in the design so plastic would be completely or, or products would be completely redesigned so that its components could be recyclable um, and would be recyclable it's kind of like um, it's kind of like what your grandfather used to do you know or or actually what uh, my my husband's uh, kind of uh, uh, I guess he's, he's like a godfather figure he um we had a septic field at our cabin and it was starting to disintegrate and uh, we were thinking oh well we're going to have to get a new uh, something to to uh, to build a, to put under the ground to protect it and he just took the the roof or, or sorry the hood of an old car and used that to to uh, to solidify the ground so you know there and that would be actually a part of a circular economy you know coming up with other uses for things designing them differently um and uh, so that nothing is wasted and everything has value there would be no such thing as disposable plastic anymore so you call it a paradigm shift required and a circular economy which makes all the sense in the world but how do we also incorporate the first of the three r's because reduce reuse and recycle to reduce would be you know i would imagine part of this circular economy because the overuse of plastic is mind-bending i mean just go to the store yeah. and if you just walk up and down the aisle and just have a look at how much plastic is part of our everyday purchases purchases how do you incorporate reduce yeah. with the circular economy well i mean that's that would mean that a lot of this plastic packaging would just disappear and and you know it's amazing the innovations that are going on in both product production and uh, uh ways of dealing with plastic um Aside from the circular economy, how to use other, even even other organisms to break it down into components um, that can be used in different ways or can be uh, biodegraded. But we're we're a long way from biodegrading plastics. And the problem with biodegrading plastics too is that uh, in that process, CO2 is released into the atmosphere. So. Um, so to get back to your question, um, you know, we have to make different choices. You can't like, for example, single use cutlery um, next year, that isn't even going to be available in the Canadian uh, uh, in Canada because um, the new legislation is going to eliminate a bunch of different single use plastics. And I haven't been using those things for years. And it takes, you know, it takes a little bit of um 
a rethink. It's remember when plastic bags, um, you know, there was a, a New York minute when everybody was all upset that we couldn't um, keep using single use plastic bags at the grocery store. And, you know, in no time, everybody was used to it. Well, it would be the same thing for cutlery. And and rather than getting uh, – we have to abandon the single-use uh, mindset, really. I mean, replacing um, single-use plastic forks and cutlery with bamboo forks and cutlery is going to put a lot of pressure on bamboo. So we just have to, you know, like think ahead, re- reuse uh, – things restaurants and takeout can uh, well design their products so that you don't need those things change is hard but change is the one world constant so that's where these yeah. the different uh, pardon me shifts in thinking is going to be arduous like it is most times before we let you go holly this is a little bit mm-hmm. of an aside but Help people and me understand what plastic means for the food chain. Because when I see the stories about microbeads and it's in the sea life and then we consume it and part and parcel is we're eating the plastic we dispose. Help people understand what plastic means for the food chain. Sure. That's a great question. Um, And there's... Uh, There's lots of different implications, but since you brought up the microplastics and the microbeads, we'll start there. Um, these microbeads, when I first heard about it too, I thought, oh, well, that's, that's a shame, I guess, but what difference does it make? And actually, these are the kinds of things that I wanted to elucidate in, in my book um, so that people could understand and be informed and make informed decisions. So micro, microplastics in the ocean, they're kind of, well, they're invisible, so you can't avoid them. But each little microplastic has a biofilm around it. Uh, for example, this is just one of the many uh, characteristics. But they absorb toxins. They also contain toxins. And there's certain types of plastics that you are not allowed to use in food production, uh, like water bottles and, and food containers, because of the toxins that they contain. Um, uh, You remember bisphenol uh, A. Well, all those plastics are in the water and and they end up in your in, in your food uh, regardless of their source because they're just floating freely through the ocean so they're contain toxins they absorb toxins including heavy metals um, viruses and bacteria grow on them so they are like these little toxic shots or they can be and uh, once they get in your body which they do through your drinking water through the fish you eat um, so many ways um, they they course through your system they can release the toxins there and microplastics are becoming so small they are actually crossing the blood-brain barrier and and affecting uh, proteins that work there there's one uh, called GFAP which um, uh, which protects the brain from neurotoxin uh, toxic reactions and and plastic is interfering with the action of that and it which has implications for diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's it also impacts the endocrine system and causes um, everything from behavioral changes to changes in sexual development to mood disorders depression um, even there's an uh, an obesogen uh, that that causes obesity and 
I mean, it goes on and on. There's just so much. <laughs> Holly, I really appreciate the time. I wish we had more of it this morning. Stay in touch. Okay, will do. Thanks for your interest. I Bye. appreciate your time. Bye-bye. It's Holly Hogan, biologist and author. Uh, let's take a break for the news. We'll make it back. Tons of time for you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. One of the news items I read this morning, which is, uh, I guess, encouraging, albeit throughout a very sad tale, is the Beaumont Hamel Newfoundland Memorial in France is one of 51 burial sites holding tens of thousands of remains of soldiers. It's now been designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So... I've heard people talk about their following of the Trail of the Caribou and or their visit to Beaumont Hamill, and those are pretty powerful stories that people are telling. So now that that designation has been assigned to the Beaumont Hamill Newfoundland Memorial in France, interesting, albeit, as I said, based on some pretty tragic tales belonging to people of this province. And the province of Newfoundland and Labrador changed forever that fateful day. Extraordinary stuff. We had a conversation with the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, on the program a couple of days ago. And it was about a, a recent court ruling that really limited his ability to look at some of the documents that should be in the purview of the Information and Privacy Commissioner. And this is all about documents being uh, labeled as solicitor-client privileged. You know, when Mr. Harvey goes back and harkens back to the days of Bill 29, then that is not good news for any of us. So the government is leaning on court rulings that have basically said the end adjudicator of who should be able to see it remains with the courts. But as opposed to having the Privacy Commissioner be able to be the final arbiter of what we can and should be able to see, you know, having to go through a lengthy court process to get your eyes on some documents that might be of importance to you, your family, your community, or the general uh, population is not great. I don't know, I mean, I can't speak to anyone's uh, specific intentions, but we, when we all think back to what Bill 29 meant, it was not only a real brutal political calculation on behalf of the PC party and their government, and I think was the beginning of the end of their hold of the seat of power. So now we find ourselves back from when we went from that to new access to information legislation, which was widely applauded across the country as being the best in the country. Now this feels like a step backwards. So the minister will go on to tell us that there was very specific language required for something to be deemed solicitor-client privilege. This is not to assert that they are willfully, purposefully, just willy-nilly saying, nope, this is a piece of legal advice and you can't have a look at it. We know there's going to be some of those circumstances that are absolutely real. There are going to be some cabinet documents that, you know, will be shielded for a variety of reasons. There will be commercial sensitivities and there will be HR issues that we're not going to hear, we're not going to see, and we're not going to get to talk about publicly with all the information, all the details involved. But Mr. Harvey is really displeased on this front, and I think his displeasure reflects a lot of our want to be informed every step of the way on the decisions which we can and should be able to see. So I know we can lean on court rulings, and that's absolutely what precedent is set in the country and in the province, but this is a simply a policy decision. The government can indeed, like if Michael Harvey agrees with the assertion that this is legal advice and should be protected by solicitor-client privilege, then fair enough because he seems to be a very fair-minded fella who's got a very clear mandate inside the office that he holds. So 
I don't know why they're so resistant to allow the person who's independent but answers to the House of Assembly to be sure that we're on the right track because all these things, when they add up and it's the commitment on campaign trails, and this is every party does it every single campaign, whether it be municipally, provincially, or federally, is accountability and transparency. So when things start to pile up where you might be disgruntled with one facet of life or another, in healthcare, or in criminal justice, or in jobs, or in inflation, or immigration, when you start adding in the fact that we now will probably see less, or maybe see less than we should be provided information on, that adds up to be worst case scenario stuff, right? Because our minds all work very similarly in that when you see smoke, you you think we're going about to be uh, breathe fire or see fire. So I don't know why so loath to allow the office that is critically important to all of us to be able to do their job and to do it unencumbered. You know, no hands tied behind your back kind of stuff. So that story there, if that's of interest to you, we're happy to talk about it. And we've had Craig Pollard on the show in the recent past. He was the former CEO at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. He's now the head man at the Atlantic Mayor's Congress. They're actually meeting in Labrador. I think it began today. One of the stories we brought up yesterday, trying to connect a bunch of these different dots. So we've seen the housing report from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation with the need to build 10,000 units per year for the next six six years to keep up with forecasted growth. A banner year in the construction industry, about 2,500. So how we're going to make that monumental leap from 2,500 to 10,000? Your guess is as good as mine. But one of the things for municipalities that's long been a problem, now in this digital age, and maybe that hasn't been incorporated into every municipality, as we try to streamline the process to be able to build a home. It varies across the country for how long between, yes, I want to build a home here as a developer or a private citizen, between then and permits and licenses and contractors and completion. It does vary, but it just simply takes too long. So while we know the pressure is on, it is absolutely apropos to call the housing issue in this country a crisis, and it absolutely is an issue here. So if we can't figure out a way, and this is not to say every regulation should be abandoned, we don't have to worry about inspections, we'll just uh, cross our fingers, hope for the best, that's not it. We have a bunch of accredited contractors that have track records of quality work. We can do a rough-in inspection and final inspections, and maybe quicker time between want to apply for a permit and actually get a permit to begin construction, because you've heard the numbers as much as I have. If we are told we need to build X, but we know that the lag time could be two or three years before you get things done, that's not going to work. Even if there is a feasibility question about whether or not we can actually do it, well, one thing for sure is if we don't figure out the timelines, we will not be able to do it. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlinefvocm.com. Today might be a great day for you to join us and share your thoughts, questions, concerns on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll for your long distance, one 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to do it. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, as I, a letter I, put, I sent to the uh, to the Minister of Environment asking for an extension um, for in the EA process uh, to give uh, residents of the province more time to uh, to go through the 4,000 pages and make submission uh, on their concerns when it comes to uh, to the project and their I guess their suggestions, opinions, and whatnot uh, when it comes to uh, a brand new industry in this province. Yeah. When it was released, it was about 4,000 pages. They people were given 50 days to try to. Digest it. I gave it a good crack, but uh, you know, a lot of it was pretty technical. 
ago. So yeah, October 11th, I think is the deadline for those public reactions. And this is maybe a cynical question, but if you are opposed today, there's nothing in that document that's going to change your mind. Do you think? It's a possibility that, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, tech, the, the technical data that's there and understanding it. Um, you know, in the federal process, um, they give groups um, access to funding to find, uh, you know, experts to help with that process and making submissions and that. And sometimes some people are not just fully against the project. Sometimes people have just concerns that they want mitigated or addressed uh, that are not addressed in the technical document. So, you know, there's, there is those, you know, who will oppose it for always will oppose it. But there's some that actually are, you know, want more information or want to provide information or, you know, say, you know, this is not a good place to build because I witnessed, you know, this this or that or, or another thing and, you know, offer, you know, suggestion to a company to say maybe, you know, as a local, I know this land a bit better than you. Maybe you can, you know, here's my submission. So this is a thing, you know, when it comes to these EAs is that – it's a broad scope of people who want to submit and want to actually, you know, contribute to the process. Yeah, and fair enough. When it comes to, you know, being able to uh, hire experts in the field, whether it be hydrologists or uh, environmental scientists or the like, that's generally done under a very formal uh, type of circumstance. Like, for instance, if there was a federal environmental assessment trigger that could indeed be afforded to folks and funding for those processes, as far as I understand, if we just simply say, okay, the new deadline now is Halloween, would that still mean that people would have to, of their own accord and their own resources, hire said experts? Because nothing gets changed by extending the deadline with the ability to do things as you describe. Well, absolutely. That's the, pro- that's the problem with the current system we have right now is that we don't allow for those experts. We don't allow, you know, the, uh, the general public to make uh, you know submission in the sense of the same way as the federal submission. That's a problem that we need to fix with our own provincial system as it is right now. But at the same time, maybe the best process is trigger a federal assessment and then go through that process. But at the same time, we have a problem with our own EA in the sense that we don't have the ability to help you know the ind- average individual make a submission that you know with the help of a te- uh, with some techno- uh, technical advice. So we have flaws in our own system as it is, and going through this like a 50-day window with a 4,000-page document on an industry that has never been set up in this province before, that's a lot of red flags right there. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, If we're talking about an industry that is in its infancy, and it is, because wind power is not new. It isn't. Now, we can talk about the magnitude, the scope, and the scale, and the size of the turbines themselves, fair enough. But the only new addition here is the hydrogen and electrolysis, which is also not new, but then it's incorporation of ammonia as the vessel to transport it to market, wherever that market might be. So if we're talking about something that's so new, like what are some of the key questions you're hearing? For me, it's proximity to residences and the community, how much these uh, two batches of 164 wind turbines and the Port of Port Peninsula and the Codroy Valley, what that'll mean for, you know, wildlife, birds in particular, all those types of things. And I get that, but are you hearing questions beyond that? Because that seems to be the prevalent or the most prominent questions. Well, you know, uh, we're talking about, you know, the marine traffic in uh, going in and out of the Port Stephenville. Uh, I've, we've heard from uh, individuals about that, talking about the new uh, increase in marine traffic. We we talk, uh, we've heard about, you know, ammonia and the processing of it and, you know, the plans and mitigations and stuff like that in, you know, in, in case of release. Uh, we've heard about, obviously, the wind turbines, their placement, you know, and the unique geography and, you know, the ecological geography of the Port Port Peninsula and the wind turbines going up there and how is it going to affect that. 
um, you know, and migratory birds. We talked about, you know, local land use, which uh, seems to be, you know, a very loud one that people are very talking about, you know, are, are they going to continue to be able to use their land the same way that they do and enjoy nature the way that they do? So there is, it's a combination of a bunch of things, not, you know, too much stranger than from when my own expertise, uh, my, own, my own experiences living in Labrador West and the mining industry. It's, uh, you know, some, some of the more, um, you know, local, local concerns about land use and things like that. But we also have to talk about, you know, the port, uh, marine traffic, uh, you know, ammonia, which, you know, well, anyone who was operated as a, uh, an ice rink would know about, <laughs> about the dangers of ammonia. So there is a lot of stuff, and now you're putting it all into one package as a, um, you know, a, a hydrogen plant, which, like I said, it's, it, that, that whole concept of amalgamating those technologies into one kind of facility is, you know, how do we operate it? How do we manage it? How do we do it when it comes to the environment and, you know, our environment? Because, you know, as, as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, that's one thing we're super proud of is our environment. Yeah, regarding ammonia, I mean, and you mentioned ice hockey rinks. Fair enough, because there's actually federal and provincial laws that regulate how you use that particular product, whether it be as a vessel for hydrogen or anything else or to create ice. So some of the controls are there. I, look, I get the issues. And, you know, it gets further exacerbated in some people's minds that all of this to be done for or with a private sector company, and the product doesn't even make its home here. It's shipped elsewhere. So we're basically just the medium for their operations and see benefits. Well, you know, they talk about a 1,000-megawatt project over the course of 30 years and however much money. I can't remember the exact details they shared, but there's something in it for us. But is there enough in it for us for what will be the impact environmentally in particular? Well, okay, we could, I, I, you know, uh, once again, like, go back to my uh, my experience in the mining industry. Um, same thing with Labrador West. We're just a vessel for someone else's product. Um, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't smelt the ore here. We don't, we don't do many uh, metal products here in, in this province. It's the same thing. We we do, we we do take a chunk of our environment, and we use it and we sell it off into the global market. And there's a large chunk of the environment here in Lab West that is not usable by the general public anymore. And once again, we take that to this project here. There is going to be, you know, windmills. There's going to be a plant. There's going to be ship traffic. There's going to be all this. It's the least this province can do, the least they can do, Patty, is give the people of that area a actual chance and the mechanisms to have their say when it comes to the use of their environment. And that's the big important thing, is to give them an actually an opportunity to have their say and do it in a fair way that's fair to everybody. And right now, 50 days, 4,000 pages, it's not really fair. I'm going to put this one out there as the last one. There is something more to all of this. I haven't heard. Now, I'm sure there's going to be people in the, uh, involved with the Exploits Valley uh, proposal and folks in Botwood or down in the Buren Peninsula or out at uh, Come By Chance. There's inevitably going to be people that have questions, concerns, or, or, or are opposed, but we don't hear from them. But we hear it from them loud and clear from the Port of Port Peninsula. And, of course, they have a rally today at the Cabot Building and Barter Cell coming up at noon. Is it simply the presence of John Risley? I mean, because that, that keeps coming to my mind. Because elsewhere, you know, some of the nameless, faceless organizations, we don't really know some of these people and or their business track record of success and or some baggage they bring to bear. For me, this feels a lot like a problem with John Risley as much as it does anything else. What do you think? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because he was more loud about the project. He came boasting about the project in the province. So, you know, he was probably first out the gate as a, uh, as a prominent figure when it came to this industry. Um, you know, and, and it, you know, and he is a, you know, a person and is a known personal friend of the premier. That's, that's a fact. And obviously people are going to attach, uh, attach themselves to that and, and, and go with it. But at the end of the day, I don't, 
suspect that, you know, everyone in this province is not going to have an opinion of it. And even though some are more louder than others, there's people that are just sitting at home who are really interested in the environment, really interested in this. And I'm sure they want to pin letters and stuff on any project in this province, but they should be given a fair and equal opportunity to it. You know, there is some that, you know, are very vocal about their opposition and they're fair. But there's also people who are very opposed to things, but, you know, they're not protesting. They have their own means of way of doing it. And one of the means of actual consultation is the EA. And if it's only 50 days, over 4,000 pages of technical documents, that's not fair to that person too, because that person also has a right to make a submission and have their voice known and have their opinions known. But some people are more personal about it than others. But, you know, Facebook, media, uh, social media, all that stuff, open line, you know, all that is a way that, a lot, you know, some people actually express themselves as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, doesn't matter how we're vocal or if you're, you know, if it's John Risley or any other business person, the process got to be fair. doesn't matter. Appreciate the time, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. It's uh, Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. We'll try to take the break on time. We had a conversation with representatives of the Marystown Shipyard Family Alliance about their inability to get a look at some documentation important to them and those who have been laid sick because of their work at the shipyard. Uh, we even put their uh, question and their concerns to the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey the other day. They've now written a letter to uh, Unifor on their behalf of the families who have been impacted over the last number of decades. And there's also a caller there wants to respond to Lisa. Lisa called earlier about... Her father, who has a terminal prognosis with pancreatic cancer, and he's been moved out to a hospital far afield. And now he's made the decision, which must be extremely difficult for him and his family to hear, that he simply wants to come home and come home to die. Palliative care in his own home. So those two calls are in the queue. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program, but everybody but everybody knows we're struggling with the high price of groceries. Food costs 18% more in July this year when compared to two years earlier. The federal government summoned the leaders, the CEOs of the big five grocery retailers, which encompass about 80% of the retail market for groceries in the country, saying that, you know, with stern words, they have to stabilize prices by Thanksgiving. If not, there will be consequences. When looking at the plan and historically what government intervention grocery prices looks like, it hasn't been a pretty picture. Dr. Trevor Tome is a professor of economics at the University of Calgary and a research fellow at the School of Public Policy and joins us on line number four. Good morning, Dr. Tome. You're on the air. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Welcome back to the program. So right off the bat, two of the lines on, in the column, column I read belong to you said, at first glance, this makes no sense. With a little more thought, it makes even less sense. How so? <laughs> well, you're right to note that food prices are way up over 18%, as you noted, and that translates into about $150 per family on average every month in additional costs. So it, I understand the political pressure that the government is under, but their plan to kind of have stern conversations with leaders of grocery chains that plays into this idea that the reason grocery prices are up are rising profit margins. And if you look at the data, which we have really good data on uh, every few months, is that profit margins at grocery stores kind of fluctuate between uh, the low 3% to just over 4%, and, and they really haven't deviated in that band. So if you look at 
what food prices would be today relative to January of 2020, so right before the pandemic, they're up 21%. That had markups like profit uh, margins not changed at all, they'd still be up 20%. So margins are just not a big part of this story here. So blaming grocers and retailers for rising food prices is just way out of line with the data. Well, the Competition Bureau says virtually the same thing. They do say that the profit margins are up, profits are up. But Mm -hmm. if we're looking for someone to blame, because that's kind of what people need or want to do, whether it be to vent their frustrations or have a better understanding as to why we are where we are, where does some of the quote-unquote blame lie? Well, first, on the competition board, I agree. Margins are up. That's clear in the data. They're just not up enough to account for anything more than a very small sliver of the change that we're actually seeing. So food prices in the grocery store are largely driven by changes in the cost of producing food, so farm input prices and farm product prices. And those rose dramatically uh, by the middle of last year when things were at their worst because of rising costs of things like machine fuel. You know, when oil prices rise uh, as they did significantly last year, that had costs to farmers, costs to distributors. Then other things like fertilizer and feed also became much more expensive. Fertilizer in connection to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, for example. But that's uh, also a sign of, of hope. Like if you look at the farm product prices now, uh, they are lower on average than where they were this time last year. But it takes about six months for that to translate into the price we see at the store. So my take is that the government's betting that food prices will just stabilize and potentially fall uh, in a few months' time on their own just because they can see where farm product prices are right now. How can we be assured that input costs that have come back to worth somewhat will be reflected in the price at the grocery store? Because we've seen whether it be shrinkflation or paying more for less volume, skimflation Mm -hmm. has been a big factor on the grocery store shelves. So are we just crossing our fingers and hoping that the CEOs of the respective big five will reflect lower input costs to lower grocery prices? Or does that, even does that eventuality require some digging deep by some form of government? Well, I certainly have no crystal ball about what the future has in store, but if you look over the last, say, 20 years prior to the pandemic and even the last couple of years during this period of rising prices, that relationship between farm product prices and grocery prices is extremely tight. Uh, And the reason is, I think grocery uh, retail, that sector, is more competitive than people think. There are options for consumers, and that's what keeps those profit margins down close to only four cents per dollar sold. Uh, So we don't have government intervention that historically connects farm product prices to consumer prices, yet that's the very strong pattern that we're seeing. And over the past couple of months, we are already seeing the pace of consumer prices in food moderate considerably. Over the last three months, the inflation rate for those products is just over 3%, only 33 
And so it's still, even right now, tracking that six-month lag of farm product prices. So I have high confidence, although, of course, nothing's guaranteed. Also, harkening back to the uh, Competition Bureau, they do talk about a problem with distribution because the big five hold a lot of leverage and a lot of equity in some of the distribution change, which does complicate it for new entrants, especially smaller localized options. I'd be, I guess we'd be remiss to not factor in the carbon tax. People, you know, will take the easy political target, which is the corporation, and or any form of tax, notably the carbon tax. What's the implication at the farm site? And then we'll get into distribution. Yeah, great question. So uh, the carbon tax, it, it makes fuel more expensive, right? That's its objective. That's explicitly why it is established to try and change behavior. And sometimes it is really difficult to shift into alternatives, particular for farmers potentially as well. And so that does translate into higher food prices, and it does vary across provinces. So StatsCan does uh, this estimate regularly, and, and little, a little less than 1% increase in food prices uh, can be attributed to the carbon tax. Now, importantly, this is about food price levels, like just stuff being more expensive than it otherwise would be, and that's different than inflation, which is a year-over-year change, and the carbon tax accounts for even less of that. So it's certainly a policy that has an effect, no question, and reasonable people can and agree or disagree with the policy, but it's not uh, the principal reason why food prices have risen as much as they have. Uh, let's just shift gears a little bit to overall inflationary pressure. So after mm-hmm. 10 consecutive rate hikes at the Bank of Canada on their benchmark interest rate, now holding firm at five, we don't know what the future holds, nor do I have a crystal ball, mm-hmm. but what do we know about the 0.7% uptick to 4% in the most recent numbers? Is this straight up energy costs? That's a great question. That that increase in August to 4%, I should emphasize, was expected. Uh, we did see a similar tick up in the United States. And the reason there and here is both oil prices. That 100% accounts for the entire increase from 33 to 4%. And the simple reason is because this is a, a year-over-year comparison. And energy like gasoline and so on is such an important part of the overall basket of stuff that we buy anytime oil prices change is that has a direct effect on inflation. And last year, uh, in August, oil prices fell compared to July. This year, oil prices rose compared to July, reaching actually levels over $80 a barrel that we hadn't seen since late last year. So we're dropping last year in the calculation and adding this year. So we're dropping a reduction in oil prices and adding a modest increase, and that leads to a a big increase in the measured year-over-year inflation. And we see, you know, the manipulative uh, commodity that it is, the Saudis uh, decreased production, might be tickling $100 a barrel sometime. That's what I see people saying. And where you live and where I live, it's the epitome of a double-edged sword. Rising energy costs will have an inflationary pressure. At the same time, with the weakening dollar and record production in the country last year, more revenues for us. So on one side, good news. On the other side, distinctly bad news. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and to a lesser extent, British Columbia. These, these kind of high commodity prices, energy in particular, increases government revenue. And in some cases, increases it a lot. Uh, and, and what that does is strain individuals, you know, when they're buying energy, and it makes goods and services kind of across the board more expensive because energy is such an important input into almost everything. But it also increases the government's capacity, fiscal capacity, 
to help cushion the blow. And so what we saw last year is many, many governments rolling out programs to try and help uh, families cope either with direct cash transfers or or other things. And if energy prices rise again, we may very well see that round of affordability programs again, you know, especially in jurisdictions that can afford it, like those who benefit from high oil prices. With a modicum of respect for governments, I prefer the money in my pocket versus theirs, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, Last one before we let you go, Dr. Tom. So we've seen inflation, you know, fluctuated. We got it down inside the somewhat of the target of the Bank of Canada, now up to four. We don't know what that's going to mean for the future, but... People hate inflation for the obvious reasons, but they may hate deflation even more. Why? So deflation, because it lowers the value of each dollar, it essentially makes your debt harder to repay. And and that's a real challenge that central banks uh, around the world really try to uh, avoid. If debts become increasingly difficult to pay in a deflationary world, that can lead to a lot of default and bankruptcies and loan losses on the balance sheet of banks and can lead to broader financial system challenges. And so deflation is historically uh, a more difficult challenge to address than inflation. Now, that's kind of why we target a small positive inflation of 2% rather than, rather than zero, just to give us a little bit of wiggle room to avoid deflation. I think... You know, I don't anticipate that we would get into a situation where deflation becomes the concern. I think really in the in the short and medium term, it's still going to be around bringing inflation down to normal. For the layperson, we can talk about inflation and food inflation, input costs and all the rest, energy costs. But it, at the end of it, it's my purchasing power. If that gets yeah. compromised, that's the be all and end all. You can tell me the Bank of yeah. Canada rate is 5% and inflation is 4% and groceries is 6.9. All of that aside, when my purchasing power is is diminished, that's really tells the tale for Canadian households. That's exactly right. People are poorer. Dollars can purchase fewer goods and services. That's absolutely the affordability challenge here. And even once inflation returns to 2%, that, you know, that's better than it staying high for sure, but price levels have ratcheted up to a new higher level. And so we might be permanently on a slightly lower trajectory here for our standards of living, even after inflation returns to target. And you talk about servicing debt for, on the average across the country, for every dollar in is a dollar eighty-six to service debt. That is an unmanageable, unsustainable number. Uh, final thoughts to you this morning, Dr. Tone, before we say goodbye. Well, I think it just there's a lot of uncertainty there right now, and a lot of what happens to where inflation goes from here, where food prices and other prices go, is tied to energy. And, and unfortunately, that's just something that we can't predict very well in advance. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty ahead, so buckle up. There's uncertainty and volatility, the words of the day. Appreciate the time as usual. Stay in touch, sir. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Dr. Trevor Tome. Of course, he's the uh, professor of economics at the University of Calgary and research fellow at the School of Public Policy. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty show to talk to you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Director of Medication Therapy Services at Memorial University School of Pharmacy. That's Dr. Debbie Kelly. Good morning, Dr. Kelly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. Thanks. How are you doing? 
I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for uh, inviting this opportunity to tell folks about our medication therapy services clinic at the School of Pharmacy. Happy to have you on. We've had many great chats over the years with yourself and uh, Kathy Balsam and others. So before we get into exactly what the clinic does and some recommendations for those taking maybe five prescriptions or more, what role do pharmacists play in this well-being week? Because we've touched down, say, for instance, Dr. Sean Connors, and people can understand the implications with our, our cardiac issues. But what's a pharmacist's thoughts on well-being week? Yeah, so I mean, I think when we, you know, when we think about medications, oftentimes we think about it being associated with illness, but really there's a wellness aspect to it too. And I would really invite folks to make an appointment with their pharmacist, whether it's their community pharmacist or um, coming into our clinic for a wellness checkup as it relates to their medication. Because, you know, as we go through um, life, sometimes we have ailments that require medication um, and also our health status changes and what medication we may have needed, you know, last year or three years ago or 10 years ago might still be around and maybe we don't need it anymore. And we call that deprescribing. So really assessing whether medication is still necessary and you know, sometimes if it's not, it's great to try to come off of it, but some medications really need to be taken off quite carefully with, with a, a plan over time so that you can minimize any unwanted or uncomfortable effects coming off the medication. So as individuals, when do we think we should be having that type of conversation? Because someone might be taking, you know, blood pressure medicine and they've been taking it for a long time. And many people, of course, have maybe five prescriptions or more in front of them. What's the trigger where they think maybe it's time for this conversation? Yeah, so the trigger can be different for different people. Um, you know, if you're on a lot of medication, if you've got a lot of chronic disease, chronic illnesses or issues, um, or you're an older person, I would say having this um, this sort of medication review on an annual basis is just part of good health. Um, perhaps if you're younger, not taking so many, or maybe life is, is a little bit more stable for you, maybe you can push that out and it doesn't need to be quite every year. But I think it's a good habit to get into. Everyone should know the names of the medication they're taking why they're taking it and when something new is being prescribed how long do I need to stay on this and you know it's not like we can look in a, in a crystal ball and say for certain what that specific time frame might be but really you should have an idea of when should this be reassessed so in the case of blood pressure medication for example it's not uncommon for people to need you know two or three or sometimes more medication to get your blood pressure under control when you're living in you know a high stress time maybe you've got you're in the sandwich generation, you've got kids that you're raising, you're looking after your parents, you're working full time. But when you retire and a lot of those stressors perhaps disappear or change, maybe you don't need so many medications and, and that could be a trigger as well. So just moving into a different stage of life is another time to think about that that medication checkup. We've been talking a lot about well, you know primary care teams and collaborative care clinics and what have you. I know one of your focus areas in research is collaborative practice. What role do pharmacists currently play on the pathway to these hopefully 35 collaborative care clinics. Yeah, so the goal is really to have pharmacists integrated into those um, collaborative care practices across the province. That was really what was recommended with the Health Accord report that, um, that was put out, and we can see the province moving in that direction. Of course, you know, that may mean that there is physically a pharmacist embedded in every team, so, you know, hired full-time with that team. Sometimes that collaboration may be virtual. So, for example, you know, we've been doing this for, oh, my gosh, close to 10 years now um, at the MTS clinic where we provide this sort of virtual service. So we're kind of part of a virtual care team with family doctors and, um, and specialists and so forth. So there's kind of a back-and-forth referral process, the same as if your doctor might refer you to a cardiologist 
challenges, they could refer you to the pharmacist for a medication assessment. Maybe it's that comprehensive medication checkup that we just talked about. Perhaps it's a very focused issue. So somebody's having issues with, with pain and, and pain medications aren't working and we can help with that. Or sometimes it's, you know, do we still need everything? Um, can we reassess and see if things could be deprescribed and people could come off medication? We can support them in that. But really we're seeing pharmacists move much more into a prominent role in primary health care from whatever setting they're practicing in. You know, uh, virtual care is interesting and it's only going to grow as the technology improves and people think that, you know, they'll trust it as much as standing in front of a white coat, for instance. There's a cap on virtual care, which I simply don't understand. What kind of services can my pharmacist provide virtually? Is that an option for most everything that a pharmacist would do or how does it how is it incorporated? Um, you know, I think that's that's a good question, Patty. And uh, I mean, just my personal feeling on it. I think COVID really helped us get comfortable with virtual care. It allows us to see more people. Um, we can do visits for folks, you know, sometimes that are working. They don't need to take time off from work to go to a visit. Like, it's got a really important place, I think, um, in society and in our lives. And a lot of the things that we do in terms of providing advice, um, and particularly follow-ups, so after an initial assessment is done, checking in to see how things are going, can, can be done very well through, through virtual care. But depending what the issue is, um, sometimes a meeting in person, um, or at least through a video uh, meeting, is better. You know, um, sometimes you really want to see what's going on, and some things can get lost in translation over the telephone. Um, you know, we do our, our assessments at the MTS clinic. You're looking at an hour, sometimes an hour and a half visit with the pharmacist. It's very comprehensive. We want to see your pill bottles. We want to see the bottles of supplements that you're bringing in. We want to talk about how you're actually using it. We want to talk about what your goals are. That's a long time to be on the telephone. Um, so we can do it, and we have done it for folks. We do it readily, um, virtually, you know, through a video visit for folks across the province because we are a provincial service. You know, we're supporting people in Labrador and small communities as long as they've got an, a stable Internet connection. Sometimes people can't get to us in person, but there are some things that are better done in person, especially if there's a bit of a visual assessment or maybe a blood pressure check that needs to be done that we'd like to be able to uh, to help people out with a more hands-on approach. Last one, and I, this has been a key conversation throughout all healthcare professionals, is to ensure that everything you're trained and accredited and licensed to do, you're able to do. No more territorial boundaries that are, you know, arbitrary. So inside the world of pharmacy, there has been some expansion and some uh, additional offerings. What else is left out there so that we can make sure that everything you're trained to do, you're allowed to do? Scope yeah, of practice. We've been seeing um, some expansion in, in scope of practice, and I'm going to say for pharmacy professionals, because not just for pharmacists, but for pharmacy technicians as well, which is really important. Um, to your point, everyone should be practicing to top of scope. So, you know, if technicians can take more of an independent role in terms of overseeing the, the dispensing process, sometimes administering injections um, in some jurisdictions, you know, that frees the pharmacist up to do other things, um, you know, doing more of the assessment piece and assessing for appropriateness and giving that sort of specialized advice 
to people, um, putting more of a face, I guess, to the, to the care and, and more time to do that. Um, we're seeing more prescribing um, abilities for pharmacists. And recently, just this past spring, we saw the list of, of ailments that pharmacists can prescribe for expand. So things like, you know, helping to prescribe for mild acne or contraception, you know, um, reflux disease. So some GI issues, mild headaches, certain types of pain conditions, UTIs is a big one. So there's a lot on that list. Um, you know, many of us that work in collaborative practices are doing a lot of the medication management with our physician and nurse practitioner colleagues. And I think you're going to, I would anticipate seeing more independent prescribing coming down the pipe for some pharmacists, not for everyone, um, and the ability to order and interpret labs to support that. So to be able to monitor, you know, are we achieving your target thyroid levels, for example, if we have to adjust your thyroid medication, you know, those sorts of things. So I think that's what I would anticipate um, seeing soon, and I would, I strongly support. Um, my other hat is I work with the Provincial HIV Program, and, you know, um, I do a lot of the medication management with our team there, and, and it works really, really well. Well, as long as communication plans are solid and you know to your point everyone needs to know the boundary of their practice and um, you know I think that's one of the things about pharmacists we tend to be very conservative bunch um, by nature and so um, sticking you know staying in your own lane and recognizing when it's more appropriate to refer to someone else because we don't have the expertise or the tools or the information that we need to manage is something that we're very used to doing too but it's all about working together as a collaborative group whether we're physically together as a team or it's more of a virtual care team for the betterment of the patient. Give the folks some uh, information about if they'd like to make an appointment to walk in and meet what you or one of your pharmacists or one of the staff and or virtual care. What do they need to know for contact uh, info? Yeah, so the simplest thing, you can you can just give us a call, um, 709-864-2274 to make an appointment. We are appointment-based. We don't tend to do drop-ins very often unless it's a special event. If you prefer email, you can email us at mtsclinic at mun.ca. Um, and the other thing that I just want to put a, a plug in for is, you know, we're moving into flu season. We're seeing COVID boosters um, rolling out, and we really encourage folks to get um, to get up to date on those vaccinations too. I'm not sure that we'll be holding specialized clinics for um, these vaccines. We haven't figured out our capacity yet, but we certainly do plan to be able to make those vaccinations available for people when they come in for their medication therapy assessment, for sure. Good to have you on the show. Appreciate the time, Dr. Kelly. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Dr. Debbie Kelly is the uh, clinic director at the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at the School of Pharmacy at Memorial University. Let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of the caller there. Wants to respond to a call we had early in the show from Lisa about her sick father who's terminally ill and now returning home today via ambulance for palliative care at home. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us now go to line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Okay, how about you? I'm I'm okay. Um, I'm calling in regards to... uh, the caller, Lisa, mm-hmm. about her dad. Yep. This has touched a really soft spot with me um, as I'm just, I'm a wife that's just of a husband that's just been recently diagnosed with cancer as well. Um, 
I can't imagine what this family is going through. I, I, I just, I can't imagine what they're going through to have their dad, their husband, their grandfather being transferred from a hospital in Carbonier. That's palliative. I'm a little bit nervous talking to because I'm so mad. You just take your time. You're doing fine. Um, a palliative patient that's on an end-of-life program, I believe, is what the caller had said, being shipped to Bjorn. I, I have dealt with an end-of-life program with a parent. And my understanding and going through it is that with an end-of-life program, they keep that patient comfortable, as comfortable as can be. Why in God's name are they sending this gentleman to Buren when he's on an end-of-life program? Why? Well, as far as I could... I I understand that she had said that the physician... I believe she said that there was no physicians available or whatever. That's right. But you know what? Government, I, 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 I got to totally agree with this, this lady because the healthcare system, the nurses, the doctors that are on these sites, are they have our utmost respect. They're working their butts off, and they are giving the care that is phenomenal. The care, even I'm going through it myself with my husband. That care that these these healthcare workers are giving are, is phenomenal. But they can only work with what they're given with, what they're given. I don't understand how there's no doctor available with this gentleman going through palliative care. That's a palliative patient and end of life and shipping them four hours away to another house. For what reason? For what reason are they sending this man to, to, to Bjorn and then to bring him back today? That's a long drive for a gentleman that's, that's, that's nearing end of life. I can't speak for the system, obviously, but based on what I can recall from uh, Lisa's uh, conversation this morning, is that with the absence of a doctor here to uh, be part of his uh, end-of-life program, and the next closest option was Buren, I guess that's how that worked. And now my understanding, once again, is that it's his personal decision to come home to die at home as opposed to the Miller Center or the the Lionel Kellen Hospice or what have you. So that last part of the story, I believe, is based on their own family decision. Yes, I understand that as well. I do. I completely understand that. But why wasn't that choice given prior to sending this gentleman to Buren? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like why, I do. Like, why not let this man have some dignity and, and like, where's the compassion for the family? <laughs> Where, like, I, I picture my own children having to go through this. I picture myself having to go through this. And maybe some days it may come for me. But you know what? Uh, I, I guarantee you, if it was Andrew Fury and it was one of his parents, loved ones, whoever, they, someone would be knocked out of, out, of, out of a room somewhere to make sure that their, his family was taken care of. It is utterly disgusting what's happening with our health care system. It is utterly disgusting, and it's not the healthcare workers because they're working their butts off. Yeah, they're overwhelmed. I unfortunately, and shouldn't this has nothing to do with me, but I actually have lived experience here as well uh, with my own father. So I know where people are coming from, and I understand the frustration and the heartbreak that's all wrapped up into one big 
overwhelming emotion. So I completely understand where everyone's coming from. Um, and not to pry, but what's your husband's prognosis? My husband has been diagnosed with a rare lymphoma. Um, he's there's like 230 cases worldwide of this lymphoma. Oh my! He is um, he's doing well though. Like he's 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 doing the care that he's receiving here at the cancer center in St. John's is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. His hematologist is. I think she's been a guardian angel, but. They are phenomenal. They are phenomenal. He is doing better in hopes that there's a stem cell transplant coming soon. But in saying all that, you know, I, I, I'm i so lucky for that, but my heart also breaks for this lady. I picture myself in that situation. I've also lived that situation. And my heart breaks for this lady and her family and that gentleman. My heart breaks for him. And I had to call in just to voice my opinion on our healthcare system. It's gone to the dogs. Uh, and I'm glad you did call. This sounds like a bit of a, a a silly question, but I think it's an important one. Is uh, how are you, and how what do you, how do you go about coping? I have a grandson. <laughs> okay. And he keeps us on our toes, and we take every day, day by day, day by day. That's all you can do is take day by day. And you just hope for the best. That's all you can do in a situation like that. You hope for the best. And you just enjoy every day to the fullest. How old is your grandson? Two and a half. <laughs> and so that's a an exciting time of life, I will say. Uh, what does he like to do? What's his name? Um, his name is Jack. Jack? Yeah. Yeah, I have a son, Jack, too. What does Jack like to do? Um, right now, it's a little bit of everything with Peppa Pig and... A dinosaurs. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. I appreciate your time. I wish you and your husband well, and the next squeeze you're able to give Jack, give him one for me. I definitely will, and thanks for taking the call. And like I said, sorry for sounding so upset, but it's just an upsetting situation all around for any patient going through this horrible, horrible, horrible disease. Totally understand. I wish you well. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, let's see here. Let's keep going. Let's go to line number five. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Hi there. I'm just wondering, uh, I'm looking for a, a puppy but a, that grows into a big dog. I just had my, my little dog put down, and uh, I'm just so lonely without a dog. And just wondering if someone wanted to uh, have a good home for a dog till the day he goes. I'm willing to do that. How long did you have your past little dog? I had him for 13 years. Oh, my. What kind of dog was it? Well, it's so funny when people ask me that because he was a cracky and people say, what kind of a dog? Some of this and some of that. <laughs> uh, which is also great. And so was yeah. it a big dog or now you're just looking for your first no, big dog? No, oh, I'm looking for a big dog. Yes, okay. My wants, wants a big dog because... I feel that he's going to be tied down, and I'm not. <laughs> uh, it sounds great. Look, there's lots of uh, rescue organizations out there that I'm sure have a. Have, yeah. yeah. Have you tried any of the obvious ones, the SBCA or Heavenly Creatures? Yeah. Or, I, yeah. And no luck? 
Okay. Got little okay. Um, well, if there's anyone listening who is maybe possibly unable to yes. care for their big dog and have been, you know, uh, hurting yes. as to whether or not they're going to be able to find a good home for them and loathe to give them up to a rescue. If you're in that life circumstance and you'd like to find a home for your big dog with our caller on line number five, if they connect with us, we'll put them on to you or you can give out your number or you can do whatever you like. Uh, they can uh, they can call the station. Okay, Dave has your number. Yes, and uh, I was going to say I have a lot of land for them to run around them all fence chain link fence. What you need for a big dog? Yeah, well, my little dogs. I had two sisters, right? And one died before the other one a year before, and they uh, they never ever been chained on or, or anything like that. That you know they had the free land. Uh, Dave just whispered in my ear while we're talking. Uh, do you use Facebook by chance? Yes, I do. Well, there's a couple of groups on there that are all about finding homes for dogs. There's uh, dogs that come from Texas, which comes with a certain associated risk, as we've discovered by talking to Dr. Maggie Brownbury. But there's another one of dogs from Labrador. That might indeed be uh, a way where you uh, can I find did, one. Yeah, I did want an Eskimo one, uh, like uh, one of those big dogs, because the fur and everything with them like you know uh, be kind of warm you know yeah now it doesn't mean that you have to take on a husky or what have you but maybe just putting that out there also on one of those social media sites that might get you some traction as well but we're happy to take a call from whoever who wants to find a home for their big dog with you and your big chained in uh, uh, lawn for them to run around so absolutely we're happy to take that call and if they do we'll connect to both of you thank you you're so kind god bless appreciate your time good luck and you too. Okay, thank you. you. All right. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be speaking with the chair of the Bonavista Peninsula Status of Women Council. That's Kathy Bishop right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. So you're to the chair of the Bonavista Peninsula Status of Women Council. That's Kathy Bishop. Good morning, Kathy. You're on the air. Hi, Betty. How are you today? I'm grand. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I'm calling in um, just to make people aware in the Bonavista area, Peninsula, uh, that we are the status of women and the Saltwater Community Association are kind of teaming up to have, uh, we are holding a housing meeting on September 27th at the College of the North Atlantic in the Bonavista campus from 7 to 9 p.m. And we want people to come and bring their ideas of what we can do for housing shortages, that kind of thing. What are you seeing? Because I'd be obviously more familiar with what's going on in and around Northeast Avalon. Our vacancy rate is woefully low. It's around 3%. We have the highest rent increases in the country province-wide when compared to the other provinces. What Help us describe what's going on in the Bonavista Peninsula with housing needs, affordable or otherwise. Well, we, we it's just kind of a three-part issue. We have students that are looking for housing when they come in to go to the Bonavista campus of at Kona. So, and then we have families who are looking for affordable, adequate housing for them and their children, and we have seniors who are looking for. You know, like those little cottages, you know, that kind of thing, like something small. Seniors want to downsize. You know, so we have seniors out here that are in their family home and 
but they might be living in there by themselves. And, you know, they found it hard to maintain that that home. So, but there's no other option for them right now. There's wait lists for all the, you know, all the little cottages and stuff and everything that's out here. There's wait lists for all of them. We have families, larger families that are in like, you know, one and two bedroom apartments kind of thing because there's nothing else available. So, there's been some measures attempted by municipalities, including Bonavista, with some controls and not growing the uh, uh, the rental. Pardon me, the short term rentals like Airbnbs or what have you. So, there's so many different moving parts. It's kind of hard to know where to start. You know, people can talk about the unaffordable rent and the inability to even find a place to view. Whether or not you can afford the rent is beside the point if you can't even find a place to even consider. So, it's it's a complicated matter. And how we get to satisfying the need to build 10,000 units a year for the next six years to keep up is going to be a monumental challenge. Uh, anything else you'd like to tell us about on the housing front or anything else on the uh, on your desk at the uh, Status Women's Council out in Bonavista? Well, there was a meeting last night. The town did hold a, um, a meeting last night on municipal plans uh, for the next 10 years, kind of thing starting in 2024. And um, there was a speaker there that uh, was hosted by Anna Myers, and she's with TACT. And um, I, I have to say in that meeting, like, um, it was a very good meeting. People spoke up and had ideas. And, and that's kind of what I'm hoping for my meeting as well, that people want to come and, and bring your ideas of what we can do. Think outside the box of, you know, somebody might have an idea out there that nobody is thinking of, you know, that kind of thing. So that, that's really what I'm hoping to do. So, you know, like I say, me um, as the status of women and the Saltwater Community Association are teaming up and hopefully we can get some solutions to what we can do for for this issue. Yeah, because as people say, there's no dumb questions. And at this point, there's no dumb suggestions either because everything under the sun is worth considering. They might not all be manageable or doable or practical, but with the challenge ahead of us, it's going to take all hands to pull the rope in the same direction to try to help figure this out. Not just reliant on people in leadership positions or elected officials. It's going to take community ideas to satisfy the needs where you live. Uh, Kathy, give the folks the details one more time, the where, the when for this upcoming meeting. Uh, it's a housing meeting. It's September 27th, which is next Wednesday, 7 to 9 p.m. at the College of the North Atlantic uh, in the Bonavista campus. It's nice to have you on the show. Good luck with it and stay in touch. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. Bye. Uh, bye-bye. Kathy Bishop is the chair of the Bonavista Peninsula Status of Women Council. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Dr. Leslie Phillips, once again with Mons School of Pharmacy, the director of the Smoking Cessation Program. Good morning, Dr. Phillips. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we dig in a little bit, what do you make of the government's announcement that come next Wednesday, the 27th of the month, you'll be unable to smoke or vape on the property of any government building, whether it be visitors, employees, whatever the case may be. You can't even go out to your car for one or the other. What do you make of it? I was actually surprised that it wasn't previously in effect. Uh, I mean, a lot of other institutions, Memorial and the health authorities, have banned smoking not only in their facilities but on their grounds as well. I I have to say that overall I think it's a very positive move move because 
you know, employers have a duty to provide a safe workplace, and that includes the outside property. And we know full well that secondhand smoke is, is you know, full of, of carcinogens uh, and a recognized workplace hazard. But I guess the devil's in the details, Patty. How effective this is going to be, um, you know, really depends. And it shouldn't be about an announcement in time for Wellbeing Week. It should be about helping people to quit and protecting others from secondhand smoke. Yeah, because the biggest question for me is, how does it get enforced? It's one thing to have security on staff at the Health Sciences, the Confederation Building, but what happens elsewhere where, you know, that's going to be an extra duty? What kind of training is required? What kind of interactions might people expect with telling someone to put out their smoke? There's more to it than the announcement. I totally understand and agree with that. And again, before we dig into some cessation-related matters, we all look at, or you look at, and Kevin Cody and others look at, the highest rate of smokers in the country has no historically been in this province. Now add to it, and that's only based on uh, data coming from legal sales. We had a story the other day about the amount of illegal contraband tobacco out there. And, you know, it's not only about numbers of lost revenue, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $81 million lost in this province over the course of a year. Now we don't probably have a real accurate number of how many people are actually smoking given the combination of legal and illegal sales. How do you factor that into messaging and the way you operate? Yeah, no, I'm actually shocked at the amount of the, the increase in contraband. And, and I would go so far as to say, because I've been specifically asking more about it lately, that the majority of my uh, of clients that come into my program uh, were smoking contraband cigarettes and those that weren't new, newer to get them. So I don't think we can look at retail sales. Uh, as a really good indicator of uh, the smoking status. However, what we do know, Patty, is that even though the prevalence of smoking, if you look at the Canadian uh, Tobacco Nicotine Survey, even though the prevalence of smoking is is going down, uh, it's a bit misleading because uh, it's going down because fewer people, and by that I mean young people who have never smoked are not picking it up primarily. I want to be clear that there are no more smokers quitting. The prevalence of people smoking is unchanged. So we have to do something else. There, there's not a one-size-fits-all for attempting to quit or cessation tools. Where, where do you find people that have the most success? Is there one go-to that seems to be better than the others? Or how do you tailor a quit smoking program for individuals? Yeah, and I mean, it's getting to know them and what their goals are. And not everybody wants to quit, you know. Some people want to reduce, but, um, you know, which may or may not be a, a form of harm reduction. I guess the goal really is to get them to quit. But it really depends on the individual. But ultimately, Patty, best practice is quit medication. We know for sure that quit medication at least doubles to triple triples your chance of quitting successfully. And if you combine that with behavioral support, you can increase your chances of quitting even more so. It's it's a, a tall task for many. And inside the world of uh, cessation, you know, we hear stories and the problems associated with the number of youth that are using vapes, and we don't really have a, a whole lot of data to talk about just how dangerous it may indeed be, whether or not it's a legitimate gateway or not, I don't know. But what do you, what do you want people to know about vaping for youth in the beginning? And then let's talk about vaping as a cessation tool. Well, smokers, uh, smokers are not using vapes, Patty. The biggest uptake of, uh, of vapes is by people who have never smoked. 
so youth and young adults. So we're not putting vapes in the hands of, of people who could potentially use them to help them quit. Okay. Uh, or as a form of harm reduction. And having said that, they've been around a long time. And again, there's no evidence that vapes help people quit because, you know, uh, the number of smokers remains unchanged. So I want to be clear about that. Okay. But, um, yeah, the biggest uh, impact of electronic cigarettes or vapes really has been in our youth. And there are good studies to show that uh, there are significant impacts of vaping in youth including a gateway drug, uh, and we, we do know that nicotine primes the brain for addictions to other substances, and we know that youth are particularly vulnerable to that because their brains are still developing. So we've got a big problem, and that's a whole other issue uh, that we have to attack. A lot of talk about addictions to a variety of uh, uh, substances, but and you know, oftentimes we also mention mental health when we talk about addictions. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I, I seem to remember reading a news article that said somewhere in the neighborhood about half of the cigarettes sold on the continent are sold to people with mental health issues. Help us understand that, or is that even correct? No, it's correct. I think it's about 45% of all cigarettes consumed in North America are consumed by persons with uh, mental illness. And, you know, big tobacco certainly had a, a role in that because they, you know, they provided uh, free cigarettes uh, to our mental health institutions back in the day, you know, Christmas presents and pretty Christmas tins. Uh, they distributed uh, free cigarettes to the homeless uh, shelters. So, you know, they uh, they definitely deliberately set about uh, promoting addiction, uh, uh, you know, nicotine addiction in that population for sure. And we do know that people that have a mental illness um, tend to uh, smoke more heavily, and they also need more assistance in quitting. They need higher doses of medication, and they need longer periods to quit. I have one gentleman, for example, who has chronic schizophrenia, who will be quit three years on October 8th, but the first two years required quit medication. If the day or the era of giving out free smokes in uh, mental health institutions or for homeless people or what have you, if that stopped, is there any scientific correlation between mental health and mental illness and tobacco usage? Well, I mean, you will sometimes hear people uh, talk about uh, you know, how smoking helps them uh, cope better or relieves their stress or helps them manage uh, the side effects uh, of their medication. I think a lot of that actually has largely uh, been debunked, and I think a lot of that was actually, again, perpetuated by the tobacco industry, who actually funded researchers um, to find uh, evidence that uh, smoking actually helped uh, uh, people who had mental illness feel better. Okay, I just wanted it's to... killing them. It's killing them. The number one cause of death of schizophrenia is cardiovascular disease. It's killing them. I just wanted to ask it because you're the person working on it at an academic level. Yeah. So I just, you know, I remember reading those stories and thinking, why would that be? And so I'm glad you cleared it up. Uh, anything else this morning, Dr. Phillips, before we go to the news? Uh, yeah, I just want to say, like, a couple of things, you know, about this ban. It's not going to be enforced, Patty. 
it's impossible to enforce it. So you, you want to hope that it helps people quit. And, and I don't know, you know, again, what the plan is, but we really, we've got this attitude out there, and I keep saying it, but we've got to stop blaming the smoker and start blaming the cigarette. It's an addiction. It's not a bad habit. It's in all of our best interests to provide free quit meds. Smoking costs an employer, and this is 2012 data, this is 11 years later now, so this is 2012, over $4,000 per smoker per year. That's what it costs an employer. It's, it draw, And that, you know, it drives up our drug plan costs because we're paying for all those illnesses that we could have prevented. I'm thinking about one of your, your callers, you know, with, with the spouse with lung cancer. Well, guess what? One in five smokers gets lung cancer. Smoking's the number one preventable cause of lung cancer deaths. We've got to start providing free quit meds for everyone. It's in our best interest financially, never mind the, the humanity of it, to help people quit. So I hope the government takes a really broad approach to this. I have a feeling it was kind of sprung on the employees with not a whole lot of notice or prep time. And, you know, again, uh, we got to think about how are we going to give them uh, access. I don't think their um, um, uh, drug plan covers quit meds. I think the government's going to provide some financial assistance. I don't think there's any details out for people what that might be, but I hope it includes no matter what source you get your quit meds from, that they will be covered, be that a community pharmacy, whether you go out and buy them yourself, you go to the helpline, you get from the health authorities, you come to my clinic. What does it matter? The thing is we got to help people quit. So however they get their quit meds, let's pay for them. And let's just think about not only people who want to quit, but maybe some people don't want to quit, but they are willing to seek help to avoid smoking at work. And that's also important. And let's not forget about that. Good to have you on the show. Appreciate the time, Dr. Phillips. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be on. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Leslie Phillips, uh, Director at the Smoking Cessation Program at Munn School of Pharmacy. All right. Uh, Still a bit of time left in the show. Tell me some good news and bring up a topic of your choosing right after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. In reference to an email during the newscast, say, you know, what was that about a lady who lost a big dog? It wasn't that. Is what was that this lady called, and she had a little dog for some 13 years. The dog has now been put down, and she's looking for a big dog. She's called some of the rescue shelters and unable to find the type of dog she wants. Now, she didn't describe it. It needs to be a big lab or whatever the case may be. She just wants a big dog. So if you're out there and you've got a big dog that you're unable to care for or would like to find a good home for it, it certainly sounds like this lady might indeed be able to provide a good home. She's got a big fenced-in yard, lots of room to roam and run. So maybe, just maybe, there would be someone out there who would be interested in doing exactly what that lady's hoping she would be able to do. It's a little surprising that there's not a big dog available in some of the rescue shelters because we know they're overrun. Whether it be some of the issues regarding that during the pandemic, people thought, you know, bringing in a pet might be a nice way to endure some of those long days that many people experienced. So that has happened. And then interestingly, and I'm, I guess I can't be surprised with anything anymore, is the story that we heard about a new program coming from DFO about unwanted pets. And in this case would be aquatic pets. So they've got this new program said, uh, called Don't Let It Loose. 
So what people are seeing is turtles in ponds, goldfish, and uh, crayfish, koi that have been seen in different uh, bodies of water. And of course, DFO will refer to them as a, uh, an invasive species. There's very few predators out there for these animals, so they're completely uh, non-native to our waterways and consequently apparently becoming a bit of a problem. So. If it's expensive or you simply don't want your, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone to flush a goldfish down the toilet or whatever the case would be, but a turtle, for instance. If you bought the turtle and it's expensive to keep and you don't want it anymore, the suggestion coming from DFO is, as opposed to put it in the pond in Bowering Park, is to call the pet store where you bought it. Maybe, just maybe, they'll have some tips or someone who's actually in the market for a turtle and might be able to take on yours. So I don't know who's doing it or what's going on, but that's a story coming from DFO. It's sort of a strange one to need to do, but it, I guess a pragmatic campaign. And then I read out a story, once again, dealing with the pet population about something that's really quite nefarious. So it might be in other places as well, but on the trail network around Airport Heights here in the city of St. John's, this lady was out walking her dogs. And then the dog started sniffing around this pile and then eventually opened its mouth and took in whatever the, they were sniffing about. And so the owner immediately pried the dog's mouth open and pulled out whatever they were chewing on because you never know what the dog is willing and wanting to eat. And lo and behold, what did she find? And then more of them on the ground. And then further down the trail, even more of them sausages and what someone had done was put poison in the middle of the sausage i mean the pictures are really quite clear i don't know what the substance is but she's found out since that it is absolutely some sort of poison so someone's out there purposefully doing this so while you're walking your dog on that trail in particular because that's where the story comes from is I guess you have to be extra vigilant and careful with what your dog is sniffing around at. Because you know when you take your dog for a walk, one of the time-consuming measures is the dogs are curious. And they start sniffing about, and they may indeed decide to eat whatever there is they're smelling. And so in this case, it was a poison sausage. And it wasn't just one batch of them. Someone took the time and the energy to poison a bunch of these sausages and spread them out around different parts of that particular trail network. Now, that's simply just a bad person, and there's a full dollop of evil therein but i guess when we hear these stories it's best for us to make you aware of what's going on so that you can protect yourself and your animal it's pretty wild stuff uh, anyway let's see one more break for the morning one more break for the week now just a programming note the first part of next week i'm away booked a few holidays uh, a long time ago not holidays to leave and go anywhere exciting but simply days off from the program so if you want to share something to give us food for thought fodder for consideration over the course of the weekend you have one more segment to do it right after this break don't go away welcome back to the show all right let us go line number one albert you are on the air hello patty how you doing best kind how you doing here, I'm here. What's on your mind this morning, Albert? Uh, I'm calling out the old fiasco. I was on the go down the outer battery. If there was any resolve, did you hear anything on that with that common way filler? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, the story was is that he had installed these, what he was calling security lights, and they were absolutely blinding you know initially when the story broke people were kind of mocking people about being wary of a light at night you know people trying to illuminate their property but i went down for a look it was absolute madness now he is facing uh extortion and mischief charges if i remember correctly and i don't know what the resolution has been but there was a stop he, he eventually took them down after another young fellow went to try to redirect them not rip them down or to break them but simply to point them up into the sky or whatever that fellow did 
did. But if I remember correctly, there were some charges laid. I know I know he was in court for the old twine shop, cutting up after a deck or whatever. Yes, I, I remember that too. Whatever happened to that. I'm just, just curious if you heard anything like, did he get charged or is he going to be, you know, like, I know his truck is still there so I walked the path every other day, so... Hmm, I can find out. I do know that he was represented by Bob Buckingham. I don't know if Bob wants to share any information or a, an update as to where some of those charges lie, but it was about a year ago that those charges were laid. So what the outcome was, I'm really not entirely sure, but I'm going to find out. Now, also remember, Mr. Way, who I've never met in my life, has a pretty litigious streak, too. He's not afraid to take people to court on a variety of issues either. So there was a lot of bizarre are ongoing uh, there at this time. So there was issues where it's unlawfully obstructing traffic, which is not a criminal offense, it's a Highway Traffic Act. But there were some charges that were laid. I have no idea where they landed, but I'll find out now that you uh, got me curious. Yeah, that's why I called, but I'm curious yourself, this off. Yeah, fair enough. So if anyone knows off the top of their head what happened with those charges, then just give me a quick email or a quick shout and fill us all in, because now, again, I'm curious. Very good. Well, thank you, Betty. Thanks for the call. Anytime, Albert. All the best. Bye-bye. You know, that was really quite the strange story. And when I first heard it, I wasn't disregarding people's peaceful ability to be in the home without being blinded by the lights. I had no idea really how bad it would be or was. So one evening I just thought, maybe it's worth having a look because I'm hearing about it all the time. People are calling the show about it, so something to it. I went down. It was extraordinary. It's not just a security light. You know, like you walk in my backyard, there will be a spotlight on you, but it's not going to be enough to burn the retinas out of your eyes. But those were intense, super intense. What also we've heard on Signal Hill and in and around that area in the past is one of those notorious spots where you would be, people would be complaining about, you know, once again, peaceful existence. And in this case would be the extraordinarily loud exhaust systems that some vehicles have, motorcycles and absolutely cars as well. So I remember that that was also a big part of it. One thing this summer, you know, I've been in this chair for a pretty long time at this point, and you know some of the stories that will be back gaining and garnering attention season over season, you know, the notable ones. Eventually when the snow starts to fly, we'll hear about snow clearing. And all rightfully so, because it's all about our safety, right? But same thing this summer. I don't remember a whole lot about it. Now, there's already laws on the book about the decibel level that you can have your exhaust system cranked up to, how diligent law enforcement would be about using decibel meters to measure the whatever noise is coming out of your your exhaust pipes but i don't recall dave do you recall this summer being a bad one for those types of complaints i don't think i have at all no but in the world anyway okay i i can't remember any but i'm sure there was there must have been some but in that world as well when we have these conversations which you know some people i think are probably loath to call with some of these so-called common complaints that we hear whether it be roadwork or otherwise. But the conversation is certainly well worth keeping on the front-ish burner just about the motoring public period. Because I don't know what it's like in other parts of the province day over day, but I can guarantee you in no uncertain terms, driving around this area is absolute sheer madness. It just is. Now, I'll admit readily, when I was younger, I had a, maybe a pretty heavy foot on the loud pedal, you know, and ridiculously so. 
but hope that I've kind of come to my senses a little bit. I try to be aware of the speed of traveling and the the reckless or aggressive nature that some motorists, so they can just kind of lose their mind, right? They get in behind the wheel, they crank up the engine, and then all of a sudden they're a different person. You know, what was once John Jones becomes Jeff Gordon. And again, racing around the city is really not getting you anywhere in a hurry. I'll just see at the next red light. I mean, that's basically what goes on. And then, you know, you talk about enforcement. And whether that be the police presence on the outer ring road or whatever the case may be, it's not only the speed and the aggressive nature of some of the drivers, but you know as well as I do, it's well understood what being distracted looks like, whether it be by your phone or anything else, but primarily by your phone as you drive as opposed to looking down the road. Have you heard of people getting ticketed for it? Like, I don't know anybody who's got a ticket for using their cell phone behind the wheel. I'm sure there's cases of it. Obviously, there is. But it is one of those things. And I just keep thinking back to my anecdotal uh, experiment by walking down McDonald Drive from my neighborhood to have a, a tour around Kent's Pond. And I just thought, well, you know what? I'm going to look into the windshield of the oncoming traffic just to see what I see about distracted drivers and using their cell phones. And I suppose, not surprisingly, but a little bit dismaying, was it was in the neighborhood of 40% of every vehicle that I counted that day walking down McDonald Drive. Like, not like I'm some sort of sleuth and I'm going to be able to do anything about it. I'm just curious. And it was about 40% of the motorists that drove by were absolutely looking straight down at their phone. And it's not hard to tell. You know, it's one thing to be looking at the radio or looking to your passenger as you engage in the conversation or looking in the rearview mirror, things that we all do to be aware of our surroundings, but looking straight down at the phone. Anyway, that's one thing. You want to take that on, you know what to do. Uh, also, in reference to an emailer about, you know, trumpeting or applauding one policy or another or criticizing or complaining about one policy or another. And one of the things I come back to all the time is whether or not we can measure whether or not government policy is working or not. It's in a pretty important way to be uh, reassuring yourself you're on the right track or the need to go back to the drawing board. In my personal opinion, government has not done a great job on a variety of these fronts, and I don't know why they don't put it out there, because there's no harm in trying. Not everything is going to work. Even the best intentions may fail sometimes. Even the best and most carefully crafted policies might not live up to the, the uh, hopeful outcomes. We've seen examples of it, and uh, I know it's probably not easy to recruit anyone in this world, especially a healthcare professional, but we didn't know what the goal was in India. We didn't know what the goal was in Ireland. We don't really know what daycare man looks like right there's lots of examples out there where it's really hard to know if the incentives and the policies are actually working or they need to be rejigged but the one where i think they're getting it right and this is not about applauding the government this is talking about things that work they either work or they don't and this one is about the employment stability pilot that was launched in january of this year but just in this region so what the goal was and there's a couple things that we don't understand in full about it yet but the goal was to see whether or not certain incentives that could be put in place to keep people who are on social assistance putting them back into the workforce start a new job or pick up where they left off so initially 170 participants were part of this pilot program here we are now in september 40 of the 170 are no longer on social assistance at all I mean, that's a obvious measure of some sort of success because it's good for everybody. It's good for the government coffers. It's good for the individual. They're picking up experience. They're paving their own way and paying their own way. And there's a certain amount of uh, pride that goes with it. There's always going to be examples of people who absolutely require the social safety net and need social assistance. But there's examples where, obviously, with the nudge and the incentives put in place, 
it can be extremely helpful. So now, given the success, they're going to expand this program province-wide. Absolutely needs to be done. Bravo. Good job. So what was once $125 to get the necessary gear, and like Brian Medora said, whether it be work boots or appropriate clothing to go back to the workplace, that 125 is now 250 And then there's some staggered further financial incentives that if you stick with it and you're still in the workforce. So under the pilot, participants who began a new job or continue working with will get a government a payment of $250 after six months, $500 after a year, and $1,000 after two years. So whether or not that translates to massive money in my mind or your mind, you know, every now and then, a carrot of any size might be exactly what the doctor ordered. So people will make the argument that, well, leaving social assistance or working more but not being able to keep more of my earnings just makes it kind of not worth my while. Now, I don't subscribe to that thought. I've been working all my life. But for some, it's obviously worked. 40 out of 170 in the course of the first uh, nine months of the, of the calendar year are no longer on social assistance. And, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully never will be again because they're gaining experience. They're fattening up the resume, right? They're bringing in more money. What's lost in the story that we are yet to figure out in full is they say there's changes to the exemption formula. So if you go to work, you're able to keep more of your earnings, which is also very helpful. But it'd be helpful once more, one more step further if we knew exactly what those changes were inside the exemption formula. But every now and then, governments come up with a good idea. And on, the, on this front, it looks like this is an example of. We'll see how it works around the province. They had been partnering with Stella Circle and Choices for Youth. What organizations and different parts of the province will be brought into the fold? to expand this province-wide, yet to be fully understood, but that's a good one. All right, final check on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Email address is openline.vocm.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.